Hi, I'm Adrian Potter. Welcome to the Designer Maker Revolution. For most of my life, I've been curious about why people do the things they do, especially people that create for a living. In these episodes, I'm going to talk to people that design and make the most amazing things. I'm going to ask them how and why they do the things they do. Please join me on this adventure into a creative life. Hi, welcome to the Designer Maker Revolution. Today, we're going to talk to John Madden, who's the instigator behind Wood Dust, the International Wood Festival. Thanks heaps for listening. Really, really appreciate it, as always. Big thanks to all of you out there who've been sharing this show with your friends and colleagues on the social sites or wherever you do that. That support really helps. All the positive feedback I'm getting is just so amazing. Thanks heaps for that. Don't hesitate to get in touch with me via make at designermakerrevolution.com. Don't hesitate to subscribe either if you haven't already. Please welcome to the Designer Maker Revolution, John Madden. Good morning, Adrian. How are you going, mate? How are you? I'm good. Thanks so much for getting on the line with me. I want to talk to you about what's going on with you. I've been yeah. really looking forward to this conversation, I've got to say, as well. Okay, cool. Interesting, though, because I still wonder why I've been looking at your um, who you've been interviewing, and it's like David McLaren, I thought, yeah. and I thought, wow, look at all these big names, and then you want to talk to John Madden? Absolutely, man. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, look, I can, I can tell you why, um, yeah. apart from the fact that I think your story is really interesting, which is the main yeah. reason. Firstly, wood dust is on the horizon. Been, yeah. It's been around, and you've also travelled internationally investigating new markets overseas. I want to drill down into that. Yeah. But one of the things that craftspeople really find difficult is marketing and business, and yeah. I reckon you're going to have some really good insights into how people yeah, okay. can overcome those sorts of setbacks and i hope we talk about wood dust a lot i hope we talk about getting hold of some international markets a fair bit yeah, okay. and, and just we'll talk about your life too hey yeah yeah well i went through the the notes you sent me and so I, you know you asked me the question like what advice would i give a young maker now and it's like mm. well you know a i'm a little bit out of that space but then but there's some other fundamental fundamental things i think people should think about when they're getting into whatever you know, pursuit thereafter that you've got to sort of take into account from my perspective anyway. So, mm. Mm. And it's your okay. perspective we want to hear. Who's to say you're not a big name either? Oh, I don't know. I think I've got a name in the industry. I don't know if it's big. I think medium is more my thing. And then it's, it's and I think people have varied um, opinions on what I do. But then I know the people who understand what I'm trying to do yeah. and are close to me are, um, get it. So, yeah. yeah. What do you, what do you, tell us what you're trying to do, John. I like the people who um, make things. I mean, when I was younger, I grew up on a farm, and I remember my father, we built this piggery, a big pig, a 200 sour piggery, and Dad was a dentist, so on the weekends we'd, we'd work on this project, and, you know, guys who were working for cash in hand, concreters and stuff, and they come out, and they're, they're pretty rough and ready. I mean, this is back in the early 70s, I was only a kid. And, they, I mean, these guys, you know, one of them had been to jail for drink driving, and 
one of them couldn't read, but they were, they were some of the best people I've ever met in my life. You know, they're working people, mm. and you get it, and we they'd be around, and I'd be in the metal shed because my job was normally to cut up, you know, bits of metal for components like steel for reinforcement, um, making small brackets to weld onto this and whatever, you know, and I'm 10 using a, you know, hot wheel to cut steel. Mm. And, and they'd be so encouraging of that process, you know, they'd, you know, you know make sure you, you don't put your hand there. And, and I felt very at home in those kinds of spaces. Mm. And like woodworking actually didn't come till a bit later. It, I mean, in some respects, in, you know, I should have maybe pursued metal because that's kind of where I started. But just growing up in that space where you're around people who make stuff, I mean, not, you know, these, these weren't designers necessarily, but when something needed to be done, Dad always, you know, kept a very strict budget on everything we did. So there was a, a certain level of, you know, design to everything to, minim- to make it work, keep it simple, make it sure it's, it's going to last, using the materials that were available to us. You know, Tom would never go out and buy brand new steel to make something straight off. What he'd do was go through the huge, like half an acre of recycled steel and metal and wood that we'd have lying behind one of the sheds on, behind the old dairy. Mm. I'd go and find a piece of steel up there, cleaned up and use that. Mm. So I think that's what got me into this in the first instance is just being in that environment where, you know, stuff gets made. So, yeah. You know, going finding that piece of recycled steel sounds very Australian to me, like quintessentially yeah. Australian, making do with what you've got. Well, it's a, you know, Australia, as we know, is a it's isolated, it's difficult, it's a difficult environment. You know, look, mm. at, look at the stuff that's going in the environment at the moment. Oh, it's mad, isn't so it? you, and there's a certain level of, um, I guess, you know, the way something would appear if you use recycled materials, like mm. a little bit of rust, you know, a little bit, it's a little bit wonky. I've got a friend who um, who owns a property out near Gundawindi, and we camp there every other year. And you know, Ben's he's an older guy. Everything is built on the farm. I mean, they're, they're sort of you know subsistence farmers in a sense. I think about ten thousand acres though, so it's a reasonable sized property. And mm. you see these. There's a set of there's a guess set of football posts there, like for rugby league style football posts. And one pole that he had wasn't quite long enough, so he strapped a second piece of steel to the upper arm on the right to get the height right. If you know what I mean? Yeah. So he just said, "Oh yeah, that'll do. Stick yeah. it up." It's been there for forty years. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and people come out and visit the property because one of his sons. Um, is is um, engaged to a girl from Norway, and um, her parents came out and they're looking at these football posts <laughs> and this old tanks and uh, they're one of those old school ones where they're up on sort of twenty high a foot, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. hardwood posts. But because over the years it's slightly leaning one way, so this thing's on about an eighty degree angle now, and um, you know, seventy five degrees with this water tank on it. And then people from Norway just think, look at this, this is completely bonkers. But, you know, it works. So. And look, probably beautiful in its own right, depending on which eyes you use to look at it. Well, this is right. I mean, Ben, I look at it and say, gee, what a great piece of design. This piece of, because for me, it's just reach of humor, you know, this extra mm. six foot long piece of pipe strapped to the long pole to make the, yeah. the uprights for the footy post. But yeah. he thinks it's just, well, why is that even, why are you even bother looking at that? I just think it's, I think it's hilarious. It's yeah. Close, you know. Yeah, yeah, anyway, yeah. 
using yeah. recycled materials. You got to, and I think there's a lot of where people get into recycled materials. Um, they what they try to do, and well, I'm no expert at this, but they try to take a recycled material and they try to turn it into a new material like mesh, like with wood, you machine it back mm. and make it look really pristine and rather than just sort of celebrating its previous life a little bit. But yeah. I was in China just recently looking at, um, you know, we did lots of factory tours and I went through and I noticed all the workers have stools that they sit at at their various machines or whatever and what they've done is use pieces of like sports clothing to pad the services. And so you've got Adidas and a Nike mm. seat and some of them are taped off with plastic with um you know with with twine to tie it all together. And they were, and I think that I didn't talk to the, the factory workers about it, but I think there's a, like a bit of a thing going on who's got the coolest looking stool. Because they've also um innovative in the way they've used materials, all distinctly different. Mm. And using recycled materials just as, you know, cut up pieces of cloth strapped together. And I took a whole bunch of photos. So I, I think that was a really interesting way that people can celebrate recycled materials by not inherently changing them too much, just mm. using them as they are. So, yeah. And personalizing, personalizing our, our, you know, our space. Yeah. individual space like their stool is going to be well you know whose it is to start with mm. and it's mm. it's built for your level of comfort mm. um and i think like you know look getting you know in the business sense of when i did my mba we did a lot of reading about these kinds of things about you know future retail and future um, manufacturing where people will increasingly want products customized for themselves. Yeah. Um, that's the challenge for the manufacturer of the future or the designer for the future is that people want individual stuff. Is this actually know? happening or is this a theory that may or may not come to pass? Um, I have to think about that. I think that, I mean, you know, the custom furniture maker space has always existed, I guess, in one way or another. But I, I wonder and, whether or not that space is actually growing. Or shrinking. Yeah, so it depends. I guess there's like a battle going on between mainstream manufacturers who, um, who you know, control supply, and the independent maker or designer who is up against that. I mm. think that um, where where the liberating fact is is that through, I guess, the internet, social media, you're able to communicate with a broader audience and get your message out there. Mm. Um, I think that I think you know the arrival of the internet changed the game significantly, yeah. and so you know the big brands in retail like David Jones and Meyer, mm. who are unable to adapt, mm. are, are basically failing. Mm. But then you know that's replaced by other types of online businesses who do the similar thing, I suppose. But ultimately, aging population looking for hobbies, things to do, living mm. longer, um, want own products. I don't think there's a single solution for a designer in that space. It's looking at all the demographical changes of what humans want mm. and then finding a niche in that space, uh, mm. which is not easy to do. Um, I have not been able to do it. I mean, I do do projects and stuff that have had some success, but it's there's no – I don't think there's any definitive answer of what to do in the future. You've just got to look at the, the data – 
and then start to make decisions about, yeah. yeah. Have a go yeah. as well, like have an idea, yeah. have a go at it. See yeah, you got to have works. the old stuff. I mean, yeah. I've had guys at crazy things that some work, some don't. Yeah. Or, I don't know, you can sit at your job and wander. It's up to, up to you, really. <laughs> you won't get anywhere by wondering about it, man. Well, oh, no, see, that's right. You've got to actually got to get, be involved yeah. and take risks, yeah. calculated risks. Yeah. Not yeah. all are calculated. No. But, um, no, some you've got to just step out into off the cliff and have a go anyway. Well, you have a hunch about stuff and you go, oh, okay. Yeah. It's like with wood dust. I mean, we have tried a new type of formula mm. for the rotating thing and, like, you know, workshop displays. And I don't mm. think we quite got the message right in our marketing, but I feel that I rushed it a little bit. But I think fundamentally it's a good idea, but mm. there's a lot of criticism from people about it. Oh, it won't work. That won't work. And Is that that's before of, the event, though, hey? Yeah, leading up to it. Uh, yeah, look, and man, that's, that's normal. I've been talking to people about, like Peter Walker, I'm talking to him yeah. about the sense of starting a new idea in the States and the sense of starting a new, new idea in Australia. He's really yeah. quite sure that, you know, if you're in the States and you've got this new idea, they'll say, oh, look, let's do this. Yeah, let's get on board. And people get on board, start backing you and supporting yeah. you yeah. Um, in kind or with cash or whatever needs to happen. Yeah. And in Australia, it's like, oh, man, that's never going to work. You know, no, nah, don't do that. Or, you know, from the participant's point of view, I will wait and see where yeah. this one goes. And if it sinks, we haven't lost anything. But if it's if it starts swimming, we're going to get on board next time. Yeah, uh, I think there's a little of that in Australia. I mean, I've done a fair bit of work in the States and with tool companies and um, – you know, and say like people, like companies like Veritas or mm-hmm. Lee Nelson, and and you know, I remember talking. I was talking to Tom Lee Nelson. I went to Maine in for his open day in July, I think it was, and I'm telling him about my plans and about my next event, and he puts his hands on his shoulder and he's really, you know, he's, what does he care about John Madden from Australia, you know, mm-hmm. like, but he's so supportive and positive, and he says, and then he gives you a bit of a, you know, if you do this. Could work if you try that. Mm-hmm. Keep going. Really supportive, um, but a lot of lots of people give you that kind of support. I mean, I was really chuffed because like he's an influential person. Mm-hmm. But then, but then in Ameri- in dealing with Americans more broadly, you know, they're quite formal in lots of ways. It's business first and pleasure later, and um, they are very positive. You know, they they get behind stuff and they they'll they look at all the positives of things and. You, you, a lot of um, people who will be from North America who will become you know, colleagues of mine always supportive and respond to ideas and give you feedback. In Australia, I mean, I'm not saying that doesn't happen in Australia either, but it, you, I agree. I think there was a lot of people looking at our last event going, okay, let's see where this can go, you know. Mm. They didn't want to look past the price of going to the event or whatever. They just wanted to see what happens. But then, you know, the people who came along loved it. So Yeah. Uh, and I think there's going to be benefits outside of just going to the event as well. Like there's the network and there's community spirit. There's coming home with new skills. I think so. I mean, I found that like out of every – or like, you know, you and I wouldn't have been talking right now yeah. if – um. I hadn't done this work. Yeah, and I was in um, – actually, when I was in, in the States in July, I – 
I went to visit Benchcraft, which was the company I worked for in my day job. They're the Australian distributor for Benchcraft. And when I was there, it was pretty funny actually because I turned up and I haven't met Father John before who runs Benchcraft. And he said, I'll pick you up from your hotel in Cedar Rapids. So very punctual sort of guy. I get this phone call to my room. You know, I'm, I'm waiting out the front, come on, let's go. And so I look out the window and there's a, a black 911 there, 1978 black 911, mint condition. I'm thinking that couldn't possibly be Father John. Because that's the name he goes. And Father sure John, is he some, <laughs> some pastor my from the day? Turns, he's got his full, he wears, um, a, his, uh, I think they're Russian Orthodox Christians. Uh-huh. Apologies if I'm, if I'm wrong, but Orthodox Christians. So I get in his 911. And we're hooning down the freeway. And we turn up at Benchcrafted where they built their own church. <laughs> you know, it's probably, what, 250 square metres. Every interior surface is hand-painted because Jamil, who's the designer of Benchcrafted, works with Father John, his brother, mm. um, used to be a, I don't know what the correct term is, but paints the interiors of churches. Yeah. So, and then there's Conrad Sauer, the hand plane maker. Hey, Conrad. I've met Conrad before. He's a really mm. nice guy. Mm. He's, and so Jamil's got a 911. Father John's got this 911. And Conrad's just come down from Canada to pick up his 911. So <laughs> they're in the car fitting the steering wheel. And then five minutes later, we've decided to go to lunch. So I'm driving down the freeway with Conrad through cornfields. Knee high in July is the saying, so the corn wasn't very high. The steering wheel had just been off this car two minutes earlier. I'm thinking, I'm sure this is going to end well. But and Conrad's going. Conrad says to me, "I'm not a rich man, you know. I just really want a freaking 911." <laughs> and then we're talking about stuff, and he said, "If you hadn't done the event, wood dust and what you do, then we wouldn't have had that day together." And it was um, yeah. it was a really good day. Yeah. So. You don't know where things will end up when you do something. You've just got to keep your eyes open for the opportunities yeah. when they present themselves. And those yeah. outcomes are so valuable. Oh, they? yeah. Well, it, they are. I mean, like, you know, that's what makes life worth living is experiences like that. For me, mm. an experience is a very critical part of my You know, I, I don't want to – I don't really care if I don't end up with, you know, a big house overlooking the ocean or anything like that. I just want to be able to live my life. Experience the things that I want, you know, keep it full and learn the whole way through my life. So, not lock us. So, I'm with you on that. Out of the country would be nice, though, don't get me wrong. It would be nice. (laughs) It's like a fantasy of mine is to own a thousand acres in New England (laughs) and own two and have black pole cattle just so I can look at them. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Put them in the home paddock. Well, you know, because I like. You know, some of you went through some of the things we talked about previously. About you found it interesting that I like Brett Whiteley as a influence of mine, is because he's only one of well, my three favourite painters probably are Brett Whiteley, um, Jeffrey Smart, yeah. and um, uh, Homer Winslow. Winslow Homer, sorry, from the US. Oh, you know, which is sort of left to centre, I guess. But yeah. it's their use of colour and proportion. Mm. There's what I adore about their work, and. Uh, Black pole cattle going across a green paddock is, looks good to me. So yeah, there's a pretty big difference between Jeffrey Smart and uh, Brett Whiteley, eh? Yeah, and oh, but I mean they've got inherent different traits. I mean I like Whiteley's paintings because of 
Um, they're, they are so Australian, and they're so rhythmic, and they move, um, and they're moody, and um, and they're erotic. You know, oh, so, totally are. Aren't they? Yeah, totally erotic. And hey, while we're on your influences, let's talk about Tim Winton. Tim Winton, interesting, eh? Yeah? Mm. Um, he's uh, probably my favourite author. Uh, I don't read a huge amount of novels, I must admit. I mean, I'm in that part of my life where I don't really read stuff like that a lot. But yeah, I've read time. most of his books, though. But the his ability to describe space is beyond me. It's just mm. when that book of his breathe mm. and. Um, his ability to describe a coastal town where these mm. boys grew up. And, I mean, I grew up in Ballon in New South Wales, which is a coastal town. Mm. And describing the people that were around him, it, I, I've never read anyone's work who, who can describe space as well as that. And uh, I went to a, a... When he released his last book, I think it was um, Boy Behind the Screen or Behind the Window, which I haven't read. What, Tim Whitten read the, a few of the opening passages where he described a, um, a cabinet where his father kept a rifle. And, you know, well, I grew up in a house where my father had, we had a 22, you know, a gauge 22 rifle. And he described that my father's cabinet to the letter, where the rifle was kept. The little shells were kept on the top, $10 in the drawer beside the bed. And to me, you know, it touches you. You know what I mean? Like, it's, wow, and you're in that space now. And uh, that's what I like about that. And how does that relate to furniture design? Well, it's when you approach a really beautiful piece of furniture or really well put together interior. It doesn't just function, it moves you. Mm. And that that's what I like about his work. You can create, mm. you can move you. So... And all great paintings, too. So. Yeah. Look, I'm totally with you on Brett Whiteley and Tim Whitten. The My favourite book ever is The Turning. Yeah, okay. I haven't oh, read that. Oh, man. I've read that a couple of times, and I'll read it again. It's it's a series of short stories, but it, they all come together. They're all interlinked. Yeah. And it's a story about a town and the people in yeah. that town. It's I'll a, put it's it on a, my list. Oh, man. It's incredible. I'm surprised you haven't read I reckon that's... That's his best book. By no, I haven't read that. I mean, I've read, I've read all the big ones like the, uh, oh, you know, dirt music and so on. But yeah, okay, it's true. I haven't, yeah. I haven't read that. Yeah. I'll, I'll do that. Have you ever read that book, oh, Frederick Forsythe? I think it was No Comebacks. It's a selection of short stories. That that was funny. There's a lot of humour in that, not black humour. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, it's a story about a cabinet, you know, which I particularly like, which is. The guy goes to this Irish village, I think it is. It might be Scottish village, and sees a, you know, a four hundred year old cabinet that's worth a, you know, a fortune. I know, yeah, yeah, I know this. I know this story. I have read. Then the it, guy yeah. breaks it up for firewood. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he can get funny. it. Yeah, yeah, because it's worth nothing. The, the the dude says, "Oh no, I'll take it off your hands. A couple yeah. of bucks. Yeah, I'm and, just going to use it for firewood. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So he, the farmer, helps him out. Yeah, I yeah. think it's funny. Yeah, I anyway. think it's, yeah, it's totally, totally funny trying to pull the wool over somebody's eyes and, well, there's your comeback, man. Instant karma's gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> well, no comebacks here. It was good. good yeah. Tell us about Ballina. Ballina, okay. Have you ever been there? No. Yeah, it's close. a little fishing village, so 
My father was, um, he bought a dental practice there and he did the grey period because he was a veteran in the war. He was a POW. He had a, he came Which back war? war and, in the second world. He was older than my mother. So, yeah, um, right. He, he spent three years in Changi, Burma Railway God and then man. came back to Australia. He'd only gone to year nine, year ten school previously because he came from Armadale, New South Wales. Yeah. And when they came back from the war, a lot of the veterans were given given land yeah. and given um, access to education. So Tom went to uni in Sydney and became a dentist. And so I bought this practice up in Ballina. And so we, my family lived behind the surgery on Moon Street and... Uh, um, my mother was um, younger than my father, obviously, because um, about 20 years younger, I think. Yeah, well, and she was a, a girl from Ballina. So my grandfather lived, he was a local butcher, saddle maker, sort of jack of all trades. But this is a time when Ballina was basically a backwater. I mean, today it's, you know, retirement central and, yeah. you know, it's a beautiful place. And yeah. back then, you know, it was... People used to come to Dad's surgery to pay, and some families couldn't pay with money, so they'd pay with, you know, a bag of potatoes or um, some meat or other stuff. And one, I mean, one guy paid with a painting that he'd done, and it lived in our. It was awful. Like I thought one time I got like, I sort of got, you know, what's the word, you know. Anyway, I went to the garage to look for it, and there it was. And I hung it up on the wall of my house and went, nah. <laughs> <laughs> and it just, it was funny because it lived out in the garage for like, seriously, like 25 years. I don't know where it is now, it disappeared. But, um, so was, that was a time. But it, as he has Ballina changed and Australia changed, mm. um, you know, the second generation of customers came to Dad's surgery. Mm. And um, and then, you know, third generation. So he built up a really successful business there and we owned a property. Well, he had some land from settlement and he bought land out near Nuribar, which is about, I don't know, say eight or nine kilometres behind Byron Bay, sort of broken head area. Yeah. You know, it, was, it was a beautiful Rainforest. piece of land. and mm. Rainforest, well, you know, that land's all pretty much cleared. I mean, mm. that's, I was thinking about that last night. It's... You know, if you, it looks like it was always like that, but that would have been the, the big scrub. So the big scrub. You know, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I love forest. that name for yeah. a vast forest, rainforest in uh, northern New South Wales, yeah. southern Queensland. I love it. Yeah, big scrub. My God. <laughs> we um, and we had a lot of low country too, so um, mm. like coastal plain, so a lot of you know water just comes up out of the ground everywhere, yeah. like. And there was a remnant actually on the property called Hogan's Bluff. It's obviously still there, and it's a two and a half hectare block. Um, it's a it's a old lava fall, so this would be part of the Mount Warning system, and it's never been logged. And there's in two and a half hectares, there's, we had we we fenced it off and sort of let a land care group take charge of it because mm. it was in, you know it was in, had a really serious lantana problem mm. and um, but you go up there it's just this huge rock fall under this canopy it's just absolutely beautiful and then there's a living rock wall of pure basalt that water runs down mm. and stag horns and mm. really but the point is that on that two and a half hectares there was 260 identified species of trees mm. just in that small area <laughs> no no um, no cedar 
the diversity of that forest would have been incredible. And mm. they cut the whole thing down, all of it. And burnt well, it. All yeah. of it. All of it. Mm. So, um, and it that's took, like... It took a long time yeah, as well. There but, was a lot of effort that went into that. <laughs> If they were dedicated, they were dedicated. and um, they were thorough. <laughs> but, um, but then behind, yeah, sometimes in the paddocks, though, on our place, you could, like on the, on the slopey, kind of sort of going up to the hinterland, there's these deep hollows in the hillside that are, gra- you know, they're grass and the cattle sometimes would take shelter in there. And, you know, we're talking, say, two or three metres in diameter. And that would have been the, the hole left by a tree that had been taken, say, 100 years ago. Um, That's the, where the, the um, stump would have been. So it was interesting. And so all the little houses around there have got cedar components in their window, all the old farmhouses. Yeah. I think Tony Kenway did, used to recycle a lot of those old window sills and stuff to make his chairs. Did he? Yeah. The, yeah, the material was perfectly fine. Yeah. yeah. I think there's a couple of stages in the way Australians see our landscape, and the first mm. one was one of fear and mm. let's develop it, make it productive. Mm. That's the sort of the first 100 years of our settlement and the second 100 years of our settlement is just let's use it, let's mm. produce. So basically that big scrub has been cleared in the first 100 years and then second yeah. 100 years it's like rape and pillage the land. And yeah. now there's a third stage and that's where farmers and people who see the land are feel like they're custodians of it Mm. and i think it's a much more mature stage and it's a shame that those first two stages had to take place yeah because there's a lot of destruction that goes on i think so the i think maybe those i mean they had a i mean there would have been a very different mentality back then totally um to today but also developing you know people who like my friend ben with um he must be fourth generation Mm. on that property and i mean he uh, he is part of i mean He's not, you know, no disrespect to Aboriginal people, of course, but Ben is mm. actually part of that land now. You know, what yeah. I mean, he's a, mm. he exists on that surface, and I mean, so you can extrapolate from there how our Indigenous folk feel about the situation 100%. because it was. Mm. In, you know, now Australians are feeling that for themselves. Absolutely, so, and I've heard farmers, you... white European descended farmers, say exactly the same thing. They're, they're now custodians, and I wonder if maybe there's an influence from white descendants of migrants to Australia have been listening to Indigenous people and taking on board some of those ideas and seeing the world in a different way than their grandparents and parents did. Well, there's, I think that there's the very stark realisation that there's limits to things. <laughs> and you can only push environments so far. Before they start and, burning on us. Yeah, and I mean, you know, I don't. I think humans have created more than one desert in our, our experience on this planet. Mm-hmm. And it would be, be quite easy for that to happen in this country. Low population, the overuse of water, mm-hmm. industrial-grade farming. I mean, mm-hmm. I understand the economic need and the... You know, when you're feeding a population of 7 billion people, you know, a few veggies in the back porch is not going to do it. But, you know, you only got to go to China to see that. So the, but yeah, one way of the earth will persist. (laughs) (laughs) It'll find a way. It won't do it with like the 250 species of tree on on two and a half hectares, though. It'll probably do it on with 
two or three species on 100 hectares. But mm. Well, I think, I mean, humans are capable, you know, good design and to achieve anything, mm. I think, that we put our mind to. But it's getting cooperation is the key. I mean, mm. you know, you look, at, you look at China, okay? Now, there's a lot of fear in Australia, I think, about China. And I'm not an yeah. expert on this topic, but during my MBA, I, we studied China extensively. Yeah. Personally, I don't think that the Chinese want anything more than us than us to be a stable economic partner. That's just my feeling. <laughs> yes. Because at the end of the day, they've got 1.4 billion people they need to feed every day. <laughs> and as Australians have to remember this, that less than 50 years ago, 50 million people died in China yeah. of starvation, yeah. and that won't be allowed to happen again. Yeah. It, it's, a huge, it's a huge loss of faith yeah, and a okay. huge embarrassment for them. Is it really? I, I believe so, yeah. I mean, I think that that was a that was a, a tragic time in their history. And the Chinese people see themselves as the natural, you know, be careful what you say, but I think they see themselves as the natural leaders of this planet. Yeah. The China is for China. Yeah. And um, up until the early 1900s, they were the most powerful economy on Earth. Yeah. Yeah. Ever seen, probably, yeah. until probably North America. And um, they are just simply retaking their place in that role. Yeah, their, and, their, their rightful place. Rightful place. Mm. Now, this is only their perspective. I mean, mm. the rest of the world might not agree with them. But, no, well, Americans <laughs> certainly don't, do they? Sorry, no, Americans, no. Uh, it's really interesting to see look, where the that other, goes. The other country that's going to have a big influence economically again is India. Yeah. Because they have had historically a massive economy relative to other economies in the world. And massive population. I mean, what the population, population is equal to China, basically. Mm. It's not, I think it's destined to pass China's in the near future. But no, really. I think to, and people in people in the manufacturing space, like, you know, because a lot of, like, back in the woodworking, which I guess is the point, is that, um, you know, traditionally China was the cheap option, and that's mm. changing now that China is no longer the cheap option. China is actually now the market, the world economy. Yeah. That is the market. Yeah. And India is now a cheap option. So yeah. I think you'll see, I know that companies like Axminster, you know, talking about woodworking specifically, yeah. Axminster from the UK are having planned planes made in, in India. Yeah. And they are, some of them are problematic, but they're getting better at doing it. Yeah. Cheap, you know, like you buy a, you can buy a Lee Nelson for 500 Australian dollars or a hand plane made in India for 180, mm. you know, the mainstream are going to say, I'll have a go of that. So yeah. it still works better than a new Stanley. <laughs> anyway, you know what I'm going to say that, <laughs> I'm going to think about, you know, how all these dudes are like restoring old Stanley hand planes. Yeah, yeah, and It's yeah. like, just buy Veritas, guys, you know. Yeah. You won't regret it. <laughs> yeah, look, I'm, I'm, I'm with you, actually, John. <laughs> But I am the one who likes to restore old Stanley hand plates. Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> because I like tinkering with things. But if you want to get one out of the box, buy Veritas or Lee Nelson. Don't, yeah, yeah. don't muck yeah, around because yeah. they are awesome units. They are. Straight you, you don't out have of the to box. like adjust them at all. You know, they just you set them up and go. Absolutely. For Stanley, I've got some old Stanleys my dad owned, yeah. and um, you know you're always tweaking them. They always, I mean, my, I restored it to a certain. I mean, I cleaned it up and it works fine, mm. but it's not the. And like in in from a you know from a from a tool perspective, when you're selling tools like timber conic architecture. Mm. The average guy, not all guys, but the average person who's getting in the woodwork 
don't really care about that. They just want to get a result. You know what I mean? And so the, the Veritas number seven comes with it. You can buy a fence that screws onto the sides so you can mm. hit a perfect 90 degrees. Mm. He's not, I mean, he knows there's all this pressure from the puritists that you know you need to know how to hand plane a perfect 90 degree angle. He's like, well, I really don't give a shit. I just want to plane an angle. So I'll buy the fence and do it in secret, you know. There's all these woodworkers <laughs> hiding away at night using all these things. But that's I'm just mucking about. <laughs> Come out of the closet, guys and girls. Yeah. Bring forth thy jigs. Anyway. Yes, let's celebrate the jig. Yeah. But I think a lot of guys who get into using hand tools find it very liberating, you know, yes. because you can make stuff... Yes. You can listen to the cricket. There's yes. no noisy stuff going on, and it's a lot yeah. more. You know, it's a lot safer. And so, how different is the market? You know, it, it's it's a meditative space, isn't it? Yeah. It, what, what What do you mean? What do you mean? Well, it's a pastime. It's a space where you can go, and and the little internal voice just shuts up and goes away. Okay. Yeah, no, I agree. If, if you do surveys, why do you get into woodworking or whatever question you want to ask them? Mm. It's my safe place. I learn how to create things. Yeah. I've got a corporate job. It helps me relax. Yeah. Yeah. And so companies like TimberCon, um, you know, it's 95% of your customers are enthusiasts. I don't yeah. like the word hobbyist because it's, it's if you get into woodworking, it's beyond being a hobby, if you know mm. what I mean. Mm. It's you're, you're, in the, you're into it. And... Yeah. Um, there's A, making stuff, B, yeah. owning, you know, knowing how to use the tools, which is liberating, and then you can join a community yeah. of people who like to do that as well. So, I reckon enthusiast is an awesome word. Yeah. Well, I would say we get new people starting at the company, you know, and they say, oh, these hobbyists and that, no. no. Enthusiast is the word we use. Yeah. Because it's, it's, I think it's more respectful of I what think it they're is into. Too. And it, yeah. it's, I know how I felt when I first started yeah. all those years ago. Um, man, the passion. There was nothing yeah. else. Yeah, you get into it. I mean, mm. and I love your, love that work of yours. That, I remember that exhibition you did. I can't remember what it was called, but the landscape cracked mud. Yeah, um, water. The exhibition was called Water. Mm. Yeah, wow. A whole I, series I, of exhibitions, actually. Mm. Yeah, and that and the boat on the um yeah. on the little revolving <laughs> sea, and I thought this guy's bonkers. But like, <laughs> did but, you see that in real life? Not in real life. No, yeah. I only saw. I only saw the seen images. I've actually. I never got. I've seen. I might have seen one of your pieces in um in Launceston at the design school there one time. But yeah, I don't know if I had any in Launceston. I was at Launceston a long time ago. Like I worked at the Australian School of Fine Furniture for a couple. They've months. got the gallery there, right? Yeah, I don't know if I ever there. had anything there. Maybe I did. I don't, I don't know. Maybe I'm making it up. But I, I remember going in there though and talking to the. They had a time because the, the the pitch was. Well, you wouldn't have because the pitch was from the gallery that we only stock stuff made by people from Tasmania. Yeah. And they had a Tony Kenway rocker there. Yeah. And I'm looking at it. So I said to the girl, Tony Kenway from Tasmania because I know he's from Byron Bay. Yeah. And um, I said, oh yeah, he did a lot of his early training down here. And I thought, oh well, there's your, there's your pitch. But the average person wouldn't know that that's. Not accurate, but it's not a criticism. No, but, it's you know, not. It's, it's, what uh, it, and why not have Tony Kenway in your gallery? Because it, it's amazing. <laughs> well, the thing about Kenway is that, like, I don't even know if Tony makes furniture now. Is he still probably our, one of our best makers? Do you know what I mean? Like, mm. the guy is enlightened with his ability. There's no doubt about it. Oh, no doubt. 
Mm. And yeah, the, the yeah, proportions and the attention to detail. Mm. Yeah, and he's and, and his approach, he's so casual. I mean, like his studio at Byron, the ocean, mm. he's a surfer. Mm. Complete package. But that's, mm. you know, getting back to the Ballina thing. So mm. we had this farm, and I'd, like I said earlier, be making bits and pieces. But I had a grandfather, which was my mother's father, who, um, his name was Stanley, leather maker, you know, like saddle maker, butcher, sharpener. He could make anything out of a tire in tubing, you know, like, like you make swing shots and fishing equipment. And, you know, he was, he died in 1985. So he would have been born around about 1900. Mm. And he was a big influence on me because he was a very creative person and mm. he could make anything. But this is in a time where you were, you know, it was hand to mouth back then. You know, they weren't, mm. these weren't rich people. Mm. And, um, mm. you make something to, so you can, have you know to solve a problem you know where i don't think there were resources either it's not like you can go to big w or the supermarket and just buy whatever you want those shops exactly. just well, didn't exist and there's no online either so well that's exactly right because his first his main woodworking pursuit more specifically was a wood was wood turning mm. and he built his own lathe out of mm. you know steel and, a, and had a, mm. it's still there in the shed in does Dallas. it work like, have you had a go yeah, on um, Oh, it worked fine. He, he, you know, there was no no such thing as a chuck or anything like that. It was, <laughs> um, it was. He used like a piece of wood and glue the block to that, and then use a screw and then screw it off. And so you have a sacrificial piece of wood in order to yeah. um, turn a bowl. And yeah. he turns some magnificent things like goblets and yeah. I mean, he's old school wood turner. You know what I mean? And yeah. all out of red cedar, Australian yeah. red cedar, yeah. like just little bits. So my aunt now lives in that house, and all the things that Stanley ever turned are still there. And oh, I've got a couple mm. of bowls that he made. He was pretty prolific for an old guy, mm. and built on this homemade lathe with a couple of English chisels. So he mm. taught me how to wood turn when I was about six or seven. Yeah, right. And so in amongst making sinkers, like melting lead and making sinkers in little die-cast molds and making stuff out of rubber and stuff out of you know wood turning mm. and at the same time I was, my father was building a piggery so I used to do drawings of the floor plans to optimize the, the sewage system you know mm. because it's, you know, it's a big it's 2,000 pigs it's a reasonably mm. big system yeah. and I think in that time I fell in love with design and making stuff so yeah uh, mm. how did your dad get involved in a piggery from dentistry well he came well he grew up in the country I mean, he's from Armadale. His and his grandfather lived in Yetman, which is where my friend lives, out near Gundawindi. When I say out near Gundawindi, I mean Yetman. And um, my family's been camping on that property since probably 1890. <laughs> old, old family relationship. <laughs> and um, Dad went into dentistry. And as he famously said, and I think he was a bit of a damaged person post the war. Actually, he was quite <laughs> damaged and... Not that he was never composed or couldn't function in society, but um, the war took something away from him, you know what I mean? Something you never saw, like you didn't Well, it took know his him. humanity, you know, yeah. like it, it yeah, I mean, the, the, he would say that the prison camps, I don't want to use the word Japanese because I don't hold them against them, I and mean, that's all in the past for me, mm. but they destroyed your, they humiliated you in mm. every way. And that's the biggest thing that I think affected him. So it sort of damaged him as a person as he got mm. older. But, you know, that's, that's not really... Well, when it came to dentistry, Dad said, when I was in the POW camp, I met a few English guys who were dentists. Mm. Um, he said, you know what? 
I did it just to make the money. I don't give a shit. It paid well. I just want to make the money. Mm-hmm. And so the money that he made as a dentist, because the day he retired, he never thought of or spoke of it again. And he sold the business in Ballina and it disappeared into into his past mm-hmm. and he focused on the farm. So all, mm-hmm. not all the money. I mean, he gave us a good lifestyle. He educated all of us, mm-hmm. my two older sisters. And he built this farm. So we had 300 head of Black Angus cattle, mm-hmm. funny enough. And um, he used to play around with hybrids, like we tried limousine cattle, and we did a stuff with Herefords for a while, but you know, it's a bit old school now. And he built this piggery, because there was actually a piggery on the property, up on the, right on top of the hill. Mm-hmm. Finest piece of real estate on, in the in the Byron Shire. <laughs> and there's a piggery that had already, when I was a kid, had already been there for 80 years. Mm-hmm. So it was some run-down thing. So Dad built it up into a business, mm. and we had concrete, you know, popping modern sheds, underfloor heating, mm. and we did this whole thing ourselves. We didn't get contractors in. Mm. Um, Dad had a team. Of course, one thing like growing up in the land, and then when he was at PRW, one thing he did learn how to do was build bridges, you know, because he's you know, on construction site on the Burma Railway. Oh, God damn. And so he was able to use those skills from the war. Mm. Plus, the, and his brother, Ron, who lived in Sydney, was a builder too, a professional builder. Mm. He built half of Elizabeth Bay. Helped him build this piggery. So mm. it was a big project. And I think, you know, it was obviously, he could invest money into it. It was a good tax mm. sort of nest. And it provided a really fulfilling lifestyle. So, yeah. Yeah. We do had you horses like and stuff. Um, yeah, as an animal, I do. I mean, I like to eat them, I must admit, but it's yeah. kind of a, in my mind there's a conflict. But I mean, I wouldn't, I'm not a huge meat eater, but yeah. they are intelligent and sensitive, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And they all, we used to have a, occasionally a runt had come home, you know, like, because the runts normally are removed from the situation. Yeah. But we'd often raise them and, you know, they'd hang out with our dogs. Yeah. Quite happily, yeah. and they're, they're gorgeous animals. Yeah. Uh, but all animals are gorgeous, you know what I mean? So, yeah. so. that young life doesn't form people, does it? I think so. I, I agree. It's. Oh, I mean, I see that in my own kids too. But the Ballina was isolated, and it was you know it's a small town. It was, and it was it was a lovely place, you know. You, we used to go. I used to do a lot of fishing. It was never surf. Yeah. It was never really suited me. Yeah, I was going to ask um, you about surfing. Yeah. No, no, I don't surf. I, I tried it and I drowned. And my parents always used to say, you know, the only people who surf are drug dealers or hippies. Because, <laughs> you know, you can imagine. My, you know, my parents were very. Was there a curse word in that as well at the same no, time? Um, no, they were too conservative to swear <laughs> out loud like that. In saying that, though, I mean, I remember, like, in defence of my my parents, they were very conservative, hardworking Australians, very um, live within your means, live within your limits. I remember back to the Japanese thing. Dad was a member of the Rotary Club, and they in in nineteen would have been nineteen fifties, nineteen sixty something. I can't remember. I only heard the story recently, and they wanted to bring two Japanese students to Ballina to do an exchange program. My daughter's on a Rotary exchange at the moment in France, so uh-huh. you know, I'm not a Rotary member, but that kind of thing. Yeah. And the or the, the entire board of the Ballina Rotary Club said, if you bring these Japanese people here, we will all resign out of protest because, you know, there was the hangover from the war. Mm. 
And Dad stood up and said, you know, we have to look forward. Forget about that. Because if we can't move forward and improve the way our relations between our countries, there's no point to any of what mm. happened in the war. Mm. That's not his exact words. What he's saying is that so even though he was a conservative guy and it would have been natural for him to hate the Japanese mm. forever, mm. he let it go. Mm. He just let it go. And I think that's how he survived. A lot of people, mm. you know, they come back from war now, like I'm a bit of an anti-warer. And I look at these poor guys they send to Iraq and wherever, mm. pointless human waste and uh mm. they're damaged because you can't let the shit go mm. and uh you know you've got to learn to let stuff go it's Otherwise, given a name um, these days the post-traumatic stress disorder so at least people like your dad who didn't have a name to hang on it you know probably would have been called shell shock back no, then it, or something, suck it up mate suck it yeah. up mate yeah you yeah, get over it at least now people can get a bit of assistance i agree but then also i think at a cultural level if you actually a, a, personally, in my personal belief, is that if you observe, like you see a lot of these young football, um, cricket, two cricketers last week resigned from cricket because of mental health issues. Mm. And I always sense in Australia, half the Australian, I won't speak to the female population, but there's half the Australian male population sniggering at them, saying, you're all piss leaky. I, be- I believe that. That's my thought. That's, That's it's sad. better, but I don't think it's resolved, yeah. That is so sad. That's just my personal belief. I've got no data. Do you do you suffer from mental illness? Um, I get a bit. I get anxiety. So, um, I mean, mean, you're so busy. Of course, you're going to get anxiety. Well, I tell you, running like running wood dust. Like for example, when you've got like a lot of balls in the air. I know. (laughs) If you don't get anxious, there's something wrong with you. (laughs) <laughs> and you've got, and you know, and I'm using, well, the first event we got a grant, that helped. Yeah, did you? But yeah. in the second one, I used my own money, so yeah. you put your own money on the line. Yeah. And this is back to Tom Wayne Nelson. What I liked about him, he, he rang me up and we talked about the event, and he asked me when, I, when he first came out to Australia, and he, he appeared at Wood Dust, and, and that was, I understand the reasons. I like to think he came out for our event, but he actually came out to help the new owner of um, Lee Nelson in Australia. Mm. Um, um, he said, he asked me, yeah. well, the brand needed some support. And yeah. Tom asked me, how are you paying for this? Mm. I said, well, I'm using my own money. And he said to me then, he said, well, then I'll be coming out to support you. Yeah. And that's the kind of guy he is. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, back then, we were talking about conservative parents. I didn't surf, no. And I remember my mother said, when I, I met Tony Ken way back in uh, probably around 2000, I think, he was still making chairs, and I went to his space. Yeah. And I, it's like walking into, like, you know, some sort of shrine is not the right word, you know what I mean? It's because it's, it was, the space was really alive. Yeah. But um, it was like, I'm thinking, whoa, this is cool, man. Yeah. And, and Tony, incredible maker mm. and uh, a nice guy. And uh, he told me a story about his team. He's got, I think Tony's real skill, though, his real skill was able to train other people to make his work mm. because he didn't, you know, he got a 20 year old guy. And now we've got, what's that guy's name? He's, he's you know, Albie. Albie, wow, you know, what an incredible maker Albie oh, is. Albie's a gorgeous man too. Yeah, he's, yeah, exactly, he's he's the complete package. And mm. um, Tony's ability to nurture those young guys and, and turn them into these 
incredible artist yeah. was his real skill. But yeah. there was a funny story he told me about he was out surfing and they're working in the workshop. Which if the surf stuff you gotta go. <laughs> and um you know, they're, they're listening to the local sorry. Priorities. <laughs> Well, Unfortunately, the know. workers probably surfers as well, but they can't go. They've got to work. Well, he's just one of those annoying people that seem to get everything right, you know, but <laughs> the, without even seeming to try that hard. But though I know he worked very hard, but yeah, no, the yeah. the story goes that they the local radio station, like Triple M or whatever it was, wasn't anything that advanced around that part of the world, but. They were running a competition where you rang in and told them what you're doing, and mm. you could win a prize. Mm-hmm. So one of the apprentices rings in. Well, so what are you doing, mate? Well, we're here working in a workshop making chairs. The guy says, oh, okay, how, how long does a chair take to make? And he's, oh, about 40, 50 hours. He's like, really? How much do these chairs cost? <laughs> oh, no, two or three thousand dollars, I suppose. And the guy says, where's your boss? He's out surfing. <laughs> <laughs> True story. <laughs> I think that's hysterical. Uh... And to me, like, you know, why do you get involved in this industry? Because of that shit, you know? Like, it's yeah. the, the little stories behind the scenes. And, mm. you know, it's, it's absolutely hilarious. Yeah. Where are we, John? Ballina. Now, I went to boarding school at 14. Yeah, and, that's it. Um, this is, yeah. So, let's go. You, 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 whereabouts in, in Sydney? No, no, in Armadale, my father's hometown. Yep. My, um, there's an art school up there called the Armadale School. And capital I um, T, capital A, <laughs> T A S L L school Nostrum Dostrum whatever it was right in the Nostrum and I always thought that was pretty you know brutalist <laughs> like <laughs> Jesus surely there's more to life than that but depending <laughs> on what you believe of course but like I went up there and I the first couple of years were a bit tough because my sisters both went to school in New England too and the reason mm. why we went there was that um, and I. Dad wanted a, probably a better education than the local schools could provide for us. Mm. Not that I really took my education particularly seriously when I was young, but Jane did. My older sister, she went on and became a partner at um, PwC, yeah. and um, she, she does amazing stuff. And my that's, older sister hey, became a lawyer. Just, and, that's PricewaterhouseCoopers, people. PricewaterhouseCoopers. He's yeah. worked for all those big firms, worked overseas and stuff, and I'm intensely proud of her, I have yeah. to say. Yeah. And she's a really great person. And uh, we're going travelling in... We're going to Spain and France for a holiday in about two weeks. And Jane's coming with us, and one of her daughters lives in Scotland. Her boyfriend plays football for a Scottish team. And my mother's coming, who's now 82. And, you know, so Jane's been a real, she's really a really important person for me, you know, big sister, you know. But she's, you know, she's also, you know, she's no pushover, trust me. Mm. My other sister, Rachel, became a lawyer and now she um, actually now lives in Germany. She's been there for about 25 years. Uh, so she married and she lives in Nuremberg. So, yeah. you know, even though we coming from the little Ballina thing, my father's plan, I think, was that get them out of this local environment and get them into another environment so they don't just sort of hang around their local area. So, I th- and like with our daughters, my, my wife's name's Megan, I've got two daughters, Eliza and Jemima, who's the youngest. And Eliza, we, we sort of put that same idea into our kids' heads. So, 
Eliza leaves home at 17 to live in France on an exchange program. She now is bilingual. Mm. And I, I've always been a big believer in um, the broader experience. Not, you know, yeah. I like the idea of you know going home and being a little woodworker up on the hill in your home community and growing a few vegetables. But, you know, shoot me, man, I'd just die of boredom after... Yeah. Um, which is problematic when you feel high making high end furniture, you need to be really patient with stuff and I was not very good at that kind of thing. So mm. anyway. So we went to boarding school in Armadale. My grandmother, Dolly Madden, lived there and she died in about nineteen eighty six. And you know, Armadale's a very important town for me. Mm. It's I always consider it my second home, mm. um, after Ballina and Ballina Boron Bay. I say Boron Bay because people know it more than Ballina. Yeah. And I did it. I did my unit, my first degree at UNE up in Armadale as well. Mm. What was your first degree? So I did a commerce degree, mm. Bachelor of Financial Administration, Woo-hoo. which. Yeah, and in hindsight, many times I thought, what was a, you want to know what a dumb decision was? There's one right there, mate. (laughs) Why did you, I mean, look, you completed, that's one thing. Oh, I did, (laughs) Yeah, but why did you start that? I mean, like, I can, I just can't imagine a 17-year-old young person thinking that doing accounting and commerce is going to be fun, you know? Well, you know, Dan, like, to a certain degree, called the shots. And my sister had gone into commerce, even though she's Jane, she secretly wanted to be a doctor. Uh-huh. And um, she did commerce because Dad said uh-huh. there's more money in it. And, you know, he was right, too. There's, uh-huh. you know, a partner at PwC is yeah. making a bucket load of money. Uh-huh. And that was good advice in that respect. But Tom also forgets the fact that the human needs to be able to find their own way and do the things that turns them on. So sort of get them off my case because I went to uni, I did a science degree in the first year, I actually started in science mm. and um, I was always quite good at mathematics and stuff and and I sort of discovered women and alcohol, to be honest. <laughs> nope. I'm just being honest with you. Mate, and it was, you know, and we I did too band. when I went to university, 100%. Yeah. God I damn. Mean, it was 10- in hindsight, how obnoxious, and no one of my parents used to get cranky at me, but, oh, you know, we never did anything really bad, but the, um, and like, you know, I was never like, you know, I never slept around or anything, that sort of stuff, but it was just good fun, and we started, some mates of mine, Towie and John Craig and Wooj, we started a rock band, and we called ourselves Trigger Happy, but I never liked the name, and we used to just do covers of, what were you, playing? you know, poor, huh? What were you playing? I was a singer. Because <laughs> yeah. Yeah. when I grew up, I learned to, I played the trumpet most of my life. So I have a natural yeah, um, music. ear for music. Yeah, yeah. Like I, can, I can sing in key. And I had a lot of lung capacity. A lot of people yeah. say I'm full of hot air. It's true, man. Flow <laughs> like there's no tomorrow. <clears throat> and um, so we started this band, and I never really liked the name. And But we used to do like Paul Kelly covers, and yeah. we do, you Jeez. know, crowd pleasers, and we play like the recoveries after the university balls. Yeah. So they're just like a, these days they call them a rave. Those days it was just a recovery. Yeah. And it was so much fun. And we still, I'm still in a band today, you know. We Are haven't you? rehearsed for 25 years now, but Cowie and I, whenever he comes to visit me in Melbourne, we go and look at guitar shops and stuff and <laughs> do that sort of thing. <clears throat> oh, we'll get it back together. We're running out yeah. of time, dude. Yeah, go to the music swap shop. 
in Carlton. Go to the music swap shop in Carlton. Yeah, it's, it's a re- I saw a guitar. Anyway, <laughs> Megan says no. <laughs> she, <laughs> but, um, she's wrong though. Yeah, she's like, yeah, she's no. my um, she's in charge of me. She once said to me, Megan, she's funny, really relaxed, beautiful person. If I ever became a professional woodworker again, she'd leave me. Oh. <laughs> God. Yeah, I think she actually meant it because you know it, it was it's a hard, it's a tough gig you know so oh, man, it is and, um, a tough gig. Yeah. and Towie and um, we went on and started a second band and we called it Satan's Penis. Oh no, really? Yeah, yeah. And you're playing like, what sort of why? music? Why? People say, why did you do that? Because we were watching this like Ozzy Osbourne interview yeah. or listening to his Ozzy, and he said, oh, these stupid band names these days, soon people will be calling bands things like Satan's Penis and stuff and thinking, well, there's a name, look at that. <laughs> I reckon you could make a career out of naming bands, you, you know? Good. We went and saw this band on the weekend. I went actually with Hague Haswell, who owns Timocon, he and I get on quite well. And yeah. We went to this music festival in Reservoir called Reservoir Stomp. Yeah. So you, it's a bit like wood dust. You pay your money, you come in and just have revolving bands. It's capped, so it's not crowded. It's really good. And there was this metal, sort of a, you know, tongue-in-cheek metal band playing. Like, this dude's wearing, like, a cod piece and pouring sweat. He must be about 180 kilos. And the dude dressed as a Scottish warrior with blood all over him and the guy with a Celtic mahedma playing. It was so much fun. And I'm thinking, this is a great name. You know, I'll start a metal band and call it Norse. Yeah, so I texted that to Adam Towie North. So he's got this list of names for bands. He must have hundreds of them. It's a little hobby. Oh, yeah, you want man. a hobby? There you go. There's a hobby. Yeah, there's a hobby. Band name. Band name making. <laughs> Plus visiting guitar shops when you're in the <laughs> Towie, I like this other one called Blue Ruin. I reckon that'd be a good name for a band. Because we're in New York. Blue Ruin's been taken, man. Has it? Oh, it probably yeah. would be. It's too good not to be. It's too good, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. There's a bar in New York called Blue Ruin, and I went there drinking with Megan. This is only, a, this is last Christmas, or Christmas before last, and we're watching this, like, you know, it's a grunge band, a grunge pub, so they play every great 90s grunge music you can yeah. imagine, and I'm a big 90s music fan. Yeah. And I made, I made the unfortunate mistake of commenting on the game, uh, watching these two dudes. Like some, I said something smart after, as an Australian does, like, ah, it's not real football or something. Yeah. And um, one of them spun around and looked at me like, I'm going to rip your fucking head off, mate. This is the look on his face. And the bartender, who was a seven-foot-tall African-American guy, came and stood next to me for the rest of the night, just stood there. And when that guy left, who looked at me, he went back to his job behind the bar. <laughs> and I went, oh, Note to self, don't make smart-ass comments <laughs> in bars in New York. <laughs> <laughs> I think you just dodged a bullet there with beha- on behalf of the, the bartender. Uh, right. I really know guy had a reputation, so anyway, yeah. things you do. Yeah. So um, anyway, so yeah, we ended up going to boarding school. I met some great people there, went to university, met some great people. Yeah. So I still sort of hang around with now, mm. even though that we all live in different cities. Mm. We, um, we stay in touch and then... Then I moved to Sydney. To, and I got to Sydney in about 93, 94. And it was an interesting time in Sydney. I don't know if you've ever lived there, but that was a really interesting time because Sydney was still what it used to be. Mm. It was, uh, you know, it wasn't cheap, but it was still, you could live. It was fun. Mm. And um, I was living in Paddington. Mate, that's the centre of the universe yeah. in Sydney, really, isn't it, at that time? What's that? Centre of the universe in Sydney at that time. It was an incredible time because, like, 
the there was a lot of there was a lot of Serbians and Croatian people coming into Sydney because of that very very nasty war, and I met I worked in a pizza shop put Arthur's Pizza on Oxford Street, and I had the honour of being an employee of Vladimir Vlovich, <laughs> who was um, this Serbian guy, and these you know, yeah, that, and I like Serbian people. They get a bad rap, but yeah. they are the ones that came out here. Certainly, initially, were just wanting to get away from that war, yeah. and they ran Arthur's Pizza with his. He ran Arthur's Pizza with his brother Bosco, and Bosco had been. You know, his, their father was an academic, and you know they had to get yeah. out of the country. Yeah. And so these two Serbs pretend to be Italians because Bosco could speak Italian. <laughs> And they had this pizza shop called Arthur's that used to be called the Armpit. And they turned it around and they used to put, they used to play like really good composition, like sort of, sort of jazzy hip hop tunes, like Rebirth the Cool and all that mm. stuff, if you remember any of that. Mm. And they had a couple of pinball machines up the back and they could make a really good pizza. And I was the delivery boy. You know, and I, I was, well, I was pretty strung out for a buck, but it was a good time because a few of my friends were there. A guy called Hugh Main, who I went to boarding school with, awful name, but beautiful individual. He became a land, he's a landscape gardener now, and he built his business up in that area. And like, you know, he does get, people find internationally now, you know, he's a six foot tall gay man with a tree tattooed up the length of his body. And he, incredible designer you know what I mean yeah. but if you knew him when we were at school he was so sensitive and he's a good conversationalist but you never thought that he'd go on and do something like that you know what I mean yeah. so anyway so 90s was interesting hanging out with Serbians Croatians and I met all their family and my boss well, a little bit later I was I'd been working in this restaurant for some time it was hard work Ever wonder why chefs are mad? Is because they work yeah, really hard, they, they yeah. drink a lot, and yeah. they have weird lives. Yeah. And yeah, um, if you ever worked in kitchens, you know what I mean. Yeah. And I thought, I don't know if I want to go down this pathway because I was thinking about, oh, I'll, I'll be, get into cooking and you know, be a chef because I like food and mm. I like to cook and stuff. And then I thought, no, I'm going to get a real job, you know, besides delivering pizzas and stuff. And I actually had a job, another job. I was working for an insurance broking company, which is a huge embarrassment. Another bad decision, working for those guys right there. It was one of those ones where you did a lot of cold calling. Oh, mate. Oh, mate. Well, you're young and easily influenced. So I only lasted about three or four months. But I went through a formal learning how to sell process. And they taught me how to use the phone and talk to people and how to use humor, Uh how to sell, and, and also... If you suffer from a bit of mild anxiety, you know, they soon wean that out of you because yeah. I said to them, so how do we contact these customers? There's the phone book, mate. Get to it. Yeah. Now, this is all pre-internet. Yeah. Back in the... Anyway, so I decided that I'm going to get a job because my secret passion, which I haven't ever really touched on, is that when I was young, all I ever wanted to be was a, was a painter, like an artist. And um, Thanks for telling I us. Felt That's awesome. Well, it is, and it's still with me today, you yeah. know, like thinking about hobbies, yeah. like, you know, my hobby actually is thinking about the hobbies I'd like to have. I mm. think that's my hobby, but, but and I actually did start painting for a while. I had a friend who's an Australian artist called Angus MacDonald, and we did mood design together. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it was a furniture thing we did, and um, he's a still life painter from Lennox Head, and, you know, he, you know he's, a, he's a professional retail artist and yeah. he does very well out of it. I met him in Bangalore 
um, when I started making furniture there. And he said, I'm an artist, come and, you know, visit me at my studio, which was just down the street. And I rolled my eyes, yeah, you're an artist, good on you, because you see a lot of artists in Boromir, I can tell you. Mm. And I went down there and I saw, he used to paint these still life pairs, just a single pair, about, you mm. know, a, a 200 millimeter square painting of a pair. And it blew me away. Yeah. I thought, whoa, realism, yeah? Mm. And, and anyway, but I've always wanted to be a painter. So I think subconsciously my mind was working when I moved to Sydney was I'm going to go to art school in mm. Paddington. Of course, there's the Paddington Art School, whatever it's called. Mm. But I need to get a real job in order to survive. My parents sort of, I didn't, I tried, I mean, they lent me money and stuff to set up in Sydney, but, you know, I was on my own, really. And I'll get a real job. So I looked in the paper and I still see, I was renting this Paris house on William Street in Paddington. And this is before Megan had arrived. So... I had no money. The electricity had been cut off. The the water, they don't cut the water off, which is interesting, I think. When you're there. And I was way behind on the rent. I thought, I was far out. I was going to get a job. And because Megan, I'd sort of rented this house as a bit of a trap, if you know what I mean, because mm. I really liked this girl. And she wanted to move to Sydney. And mm. so I thought, I'll rent a house and impress her, but I had no money. So I opened the paper and it said, Cabinet Maker's Assistance Required. No experience necessary. And I went, it was in Alexandria, which is just the inner west there, not far from Paddo. And I went out to the workshop, and the guy's name was Tony, I mean, this is like 94, I can't remember his second name. It was called The Look of Timber, which is, is nearly as bad as, you know, I would like that Lee Gabbard, don't publish that. But no, Dom names the business is going there, the couple. When you know, Note to people making furniture or want to promote a business, don't give businesses dumb names. They wood dust I wonder about sometimes. Evan Dunstan wanted to call it Big Wood. Initially. <laughs> should be and a I big woody. Past, huh? Yeah, Big Wood. Just, you know, big. And I, you know, we were mucking around with some graphics with huge, you know, with those old cedar to get a tree. Yeah. And with little dudes, you know, in front of them has some imagery. Yeah. And I actually spoke to the artist who does the bench crafted art in the US and he was mucking around with some prototypes. But I rang Linda Nathan and I said, what do you think about this name, Big Wood? And she said, are you serious, John? Just like that. Mm. <laughs> and then I spoke to Wally Wilson who runs Veritas. What do you think, Wally, as a name for a show? Mm. He says, well, in North America, John, that means something else. Yeah. Yeah? And I thought, okay, we'll change it to Wood Dust. Yeah. But easy to remember. That's important with a business name. Easy yeah. to pronounce. Mm. And, you know, not rude or anything like that. But no. So uh, the look of timber. So I went into this place, and they were doing a lot of um, recycled Oregon work. So because what was happening at the time was that you know, pulling down all the old factories in Alexandria, which to me was a wonderland, you know what I mean? All these single-level, asbestos-roofed factories yeah. off the edge of the city where shit was being made, mm. you know what I mean? Car mechanics, woodwork shops, yeah. metalworks, all old school. Yeah. It's all gone now. It's just all apartments. Yeah. So as they're pulling down these factories, sorry? And boring. Oh, yeah, well, it's suburbia. Well, not suburbia, it's, you know, Sydney grew. Yeah. And, um... The, they were pulling down all the old factories and most of the rafters in all these old factories was made out of two by eight Oregon. Yeah. yeah. So we'd rip it up and turn it into those old hutches and, you know, yeah. you know, that look from the early 90s, which was that Oregon clear, 
mirror tone on clear Oregon with nail holes in it. Mm. And I got a job working in there because I walked in and the guy and the guy was there's a pile of Oregon on the floor. I said, "Oh yeah, you're using Oregon because I knew Oregon from yeah. from the farm because we used to use it to reinforce stuff for molds to yeah. build." poor slabs and stuff and I got the job on that because I knew what the wood was and I worked for there for three years and this was an interesting business because it was it was run by a Persian guy called Nada and he had a bunch of Persian guys working there who were also n- new um, members of the Sydney community you know mm-hmm. most of these guys were Christians getting out of Iraq mm-hmm. uh, out of Iran yeah, after and the I worked revolution. so there's me from Armadale private school boy working with two Filipino welders. One was called Manuel, and the other one was Rodrigo. And Rodrigo was the finest welder I've ever seen because he used to work on gas pipes in Saudi Arabia. And he was making custom steel furniture. And Nada ran the business. He was the he was very, he was very pale-skinned. And my friends, Amir and Mr. Ali. Amir and Mr. Ali, that's what they call themselves. They were dark-skinned Persian guys. Oh, he's from the north. He's better than us, but don't worry about that. <laughs> And I hung around these dudes, man. I was hanging, hanging around with these two guys from Iran, mm. and they taught me how to cook on charcoal, <gasps> you know, like yeah. make a proper lamb kebab and cook it on charcoal. Uh, yeah. And you go to their house. They used to get invited to their home, and we sit on the floor as you do, and yeah. they'd all be talking Persian, and they'd call me Skippy, yeah, because yeah. I'm an apprentice. And it was like a reverse racism kind of yeah. thing, but it was all very well you know, in yeah. very good humour. Yeah. And I hung out with these guys for three or four years and, you know, the back streets of Sydney. It was fantastic. So my world was filled with Serbians, Persians, Filipino guys and making stuff. Yeah. It, was, it was quite it was quite a weird time. So my great regret from that time though is probably not ever going and doing a formal training in woodworking yeah, really? when I was younger. But because I spent a lot of time making a lot of dumb mistakes that it could have been resolved with going to a school for a year or something. So, yeah. but then on the other hand, like Malou says in his book, forget schools, just get a bunch of tools and work hard. So yeah. that was kind of the approach. Yeah. And then, then the third dumb mistake I made was starting a business with three years' experience. You know what I mean? <laughs> Just, seriously, who does that? Um, my eyes are bigger yeah. than my mouth, that's what my mother would say. And so I started making custom furniture in Sydney at, well, how old was I? I must have been about 27. I rented a little shop at the back of McAvoy Street. I managed to get a whole bunch of tools together. My dad bought me an MBS 300 table saw and I started making furniture and, you know, I kicked along with that for about, Sydney was cool but I made a lot of mistakes and it was very much hand to mouth and and it was it was different then too. Like now, like I think of, you know, if you wanted a shed, you had to rent it. You couldn't join a cooperative. You couldn't go to a makerspace. You make custom furniture, and I believe even in the early 90s, people were still saying, oh, can you have furniture made? It was kind of a thing that had disappeared. And it wasn't until I was invited to be in a show at Bungalore Woodworks that I met other people like Evan Dunstan and uh, and, and so on from that. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, this is a whole community of these people. So, and I met Tony Kenway at the Australian Craft Show and... Stuff like that, and then the, you know, and on you go. Yeah. But it was, 
I never really made any money doing that. So were I didn't with, stand up well. Were you with your wife then? Did you have kids? Yeah, we we um we were together in Sydney and then we after about five years in Sydney, I think it would have been approximately, I'd been there a total of say about eight years. Yeah. Then we thought, well, as everyone does, I think, let's go and live in the country and grow vegetables yeah. mode of your life. Yeah. So there's not that it was a dumb mistake, but, you know, really challenging. So we moved up to Byron, and I started working. I rented a shed and started making furniture in a really seasonal environment. I did okay. I probably made a couple of dumb mistakes with I got overcapitalized, and I didn't – and I'm, actually, I was doing okay in Bangalore. I was making – I fitted out half the shops in the little yeah. retail shops and stuff, and yeah. I had a few Sydney customers, and – it was difficult to deal with them because it was so far away. It's still, you know, internet was only really emerging in the consumer sense anyway. So I ended up, and I, I got a bit frustrated, and, and I, so I decided to move my business from Bangalore down to Byron Bay, which was a big mistake. It sent me broke because I failed to understand that one of my customers said, Macadamia farmer from the hinterland. you got to understand, John, us Macadamia farmers don't go down to Byron Bay. And bang, you know what I mean? And I just lost my clientele. And it was just a big mistake. And I think by that stage, I've been making furniture, like custom furniture, for seven odd years or whatever, and I was burnt out. And I thought, this is not working out for me. And I think one of the hardest things I had to do was I had I owed some money, so I had to sell my gear, all of it. And I still get my hand tools and stuff. And I had to go suck it up and get a job. So I found a job in Brisbane, and I don't like Brisbane as a rule. It was too hot for me. But we had two babies at this point, yeah. little, little ones, and I needed to get a real job. So yeah. we moved from Byron up to Brisbane. Byron Bay was a beautiful experience. You know, we had a garden. We lived on the farm that my family owned. Were, you know, I used to go fishing, and we'd come home and cook. It was really rustic. It was yeah. so beautiful. Yeah. We raised these two. Those two kids appeared. And I made some interesting work at the time. I did mood design at that time, right. and but I just wasn't making any money. So we moved up to Brisbane, and I started working at the furniture-making company of Australia, known as FMCA, which did high-end residential fit-out, hotel fit-out, and super yachts. And so I got into the super yacht industry as a like a production planner kind of job. Yeah, right. And my knowledge of making stuff was very useful because if you've ever worked on a big boat like a super yacht you know thousands of custom objects very high quality yeah. uncompromising customers so i did that it was it was really interesting i loved mm. working on the boats yeah. <laughs> really challenging uh, yeah. but i wasn't on the tools anymore so yeah yeah did you miss it the boat work yeah no, i mean i'd get back to that i don't know i, I always well actually i still made stuff on the side i've had a workshop at home and I, it's only been in the recent few years that I've stopped making completely because I've just been so – I did my MBA and I just haven't had any time. But I, I did mood design practically on the side that whole time for about six or seven years with Angus McDonald. Yeah. And we were selling furniture in the US and the UK, yeah. not huge quantities, but, you know, because it was yeah. furniture that looked like cows. So it was yeah. sounds dumb, but it was actually quite cool. It was different. It was more, it was a Judy Kensley McKee thing, you know what I mean? Kind of angle, like, yeah. you know, animalistic. And, mm. 
high quality though. And we won the Studio Furniture Award at Bungendore and Neil Erasmus wrote a really great review about it. Because yeah. what we were trying to do was capture the humour in woodwork or humour in objects. Yeah. And I think we managed to achieve that. So yeah. I was doing that on the side whilst having a proper job. But then in, when the... Um, then I ended up working for a smaller company uh, run by a guy called Will Marks Craft. Will Marks, he's still around. Will Marks, he makes furniture now. And he's a really good organiser of stuff. And we landed this boat project because FMCA, the big player, basically went out of business. And there's, there was this $2 million fit out to do mm-hmm. on this super yacht. It wasn't really a super yacht. It was a high-end cruising boat, like 80-foot carbon fibre hull built by McConaughey Yachts in Sydney. They're the the people who built wild oats. And we won the fit out. (laughs) It's like, really? And and so we built a a, a complete replica of the interior out of CNC at MDF and employed a team of about 15 guys because there was a lot of guys hanging around from the FMCA days. Incredible craftsmen. And these people aren't famous for being woodworkers, just exceptionally good craftsmen. They can work with metal, they can work with carbon, and they can work with wood. And we we did this project. Then we, you know, I think Will made a fair bit of money out of that. He bought a Porsche and stuff, and well, it was a fake one, but we don't talk about that. And um, it was like those reproduction 350Bs. Yeah. Anyway, cool car, but then the GFC kicked in, uh, and we were all unemployed. Yeah. And I thought, geez, what do I do now? And I got a phone call from Raf Nathan at yep. Wood Review. Yep. He said, do you want to come work for the magazine part-time? And that kind of set me on this current pathway to now. Wow. So, um, yeah, and then I worked at Gregory's and I'm yep. three years at Carbotech as a marketing manager and, yep. and now Timbercon. Yep. So, yeah. So that's a brief history of my experience today. Yeah, and you've mm. got an MBA, so you've, mm. you've been super busy doing all this stuff. I know. Studying. I'm tired. Yeah. Well, the MBA was fun. Like, it was hard. It was a lot of work. And I worked, the secret to that is being a good team. I had two guys in my team, Vishal from Brisbane and Rakesh, who was from Fiji, both Indian guys. Mm. And we became a very tight team. Rakesh is the smartest guy I've ever met in my life. Yeah. He's electrical engineer, project manager. Mm-hmm. Wow. And so unassuming too, you know, such a, such a Fijian kind of person. Indian Fijian. Mm-hmm. I can't remember what the right term is for that. So we studied really hard. I finished with a distinction overall. And I wanted to do that yeah. as much for myself as the practical reasons because mm-hmm. my first degree effort was, you know, when I did commerce was pretty much dismal let's say and then i wanted to you know prove to myself that i could do this academic academic yeah. thing but then all you know and i found in doing the mba i learned a lot more about myself than anything and it really was the gateway to be able to do the wood dust project you know yeah. having the confidence and having the skills marketing administration and people skills to actually be able to pull that together and you know you know, I still make mistakes like i said you know, people get upset, people misinterpret you, you, do, you lose your temper here and there. And But without that experience of the NBA, I don't think I would have had the confidence. And I've been thinking about these kinds of events for some time, though. But mm. it really launched me into it, yeah. So what was the impetus behind wood dust? What did you see as the opening there or the need for that? Well, because I'd been working for the tool companies for so long, 
and you know, and I have a fundamental interest in entertainment, right? Not um, like for me, like running a woodworking event. When I used to design an exhibition, like, and I did a few independent exhibitions mm. when I was still making full time, mm. I'd look at that like a, you know. Like like a Bruce Springsteen album, you know, you got your opening songs and then you got your body songs and the, the, the yeah. like an album. The the show the show would have a theme to it, and you're looking at each idea from I'm a big Bruce Springsteen fan, each yeah. idea from a different angle, but they all revolve around the same idea, yeah. and and that's how I always looked at doing an event. It's you know, lots of people who like in, in selling tools and stuff think you're in the business of selling tools. You're not. You're in the business of entertaining woodworkers. There's a difference, you know. Yeah. Don't be in the business of selling tools. Be in the business of woodworking yeah. and make it fun and engaging. And so the, the, the woodworking shows have been like the working with wood show was on its, in its death throes. And I'd learned from my travels in the US that there was other types of shows like handworks or um, and I've, I've been to handworks and I've been to Wood Magazine which is not published in Australia um, they have their weekend at Wood event where you go and you pay your five, 750 US dollars and go to different classes over three days and I went this is the next level of event you know and so I'd, I'd been talking to Evan Dunson for some time about mm. this. And then when I came back from my trip two years ago, approximately, I thought, oh, well, let's do it. You know? mm. So we started this idea with wood dust. There was, we chose that region down in Canberra. You know, there's a lot of woodworking stuff going on there, bung and door mm. galleries there, mm. the, the, the art school in, um, at the, at the University of ANU. Mm. And we managed to align our project with some grants that the government were putting out to help develop regional tourism. And we won a grant. So we, it really, it was a really big help. And we had support from Mike Kelly MP, the other guy from the Nationals, whose name escapes me, John Barillaro, who was got behind it. So we met all these people. And I thought, this is great because, you know, Woodworking gets mainstream, so but it was a tough project. Yeah, it yeah. really was. Yeah, how yeah. successful was it? Do you think? Okay, well, it was new, and new things need nurturing. And mm. I think there was a, there's a, there's a small group of people, well, medium-sized group of people who were into it, and they backed it, and yeah. they came to the event. The retailers backed it, like people like um, Terry Gordon, yeah. uh, Wally Wilson from Veritas, Carvatec came to the show, Timbercon came to the show, and I yeah. have a late, Gregory Machinery came to the show. I mean, yeah. I've got relationships with all these businesses, good and bad, I suppose, in some respects. But And then I, Michael Fortune made himself available for us because yeah. Evan had a contact with him, and I knew Andy Buck. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Andy. Andy is... Um, incredible maker from Rochester, New York, yeah. friends with Wendell Castle, you yeah. know, that kind of guy, yeah. even though people are saying, oh, his stuff's a bit weird. And I'm like, well, dude, he's the real thing, you know what I mean? <laughs> um, um, studio maker and nicest yeah. person alive, too. Yeah. And then we had Vic Teslin, who I'd known because I ran yeah. the Veritas Down Under tour a few year, couple of years earlier, mm. which was good for the brand. And it was, you know, going on the show, on the road, because. We did these Veritas tours and 
again, I looked at them like a concert tour. This is entertainment. We roll into town, we set up, we show people woodworking, you sell some products and you move on to the next town. We had a T-shirt and everything. It was great. And then Matt Kenny I'd met through Fine Woodworking because I had a couple of – I've been to a few of their functions in the U.S. Actually, a lot of this I owe credit to Wally Wilson from Veritas. Because I was at at the show in Atlanta, Atlanta Tool Show, these big trade shows. Eighty percent leans towards heavy machinery and stuff, Mm. but twenty percent is hand tools. And so Veritas are there. And I met Wally. I'd known him from the tour. um, Nice guy. And he said, "Do you want to come to the fine woodworking party?" I said, "Oh yeah, (laughs) I'll go to that." So. I went in there and I was a little bit overexcited and not thinking, I put on a Lost Arts Press t-shirt, you know, old Die Trying t-shirt, because I thought that when um, Lost Arts started getting going, I think David Eckhart was employing the books and yeah, um, we, Carbotech, got their hands on it as well yeah, and we right. brought the t-shirts out. Yeah. Me not thinking, and Wally says, you can't be wearing that shirt to a fine woodworking event because Wally's, you know, in North Americans in general are quite conservative. I thought, they won't notice. So there I am, and I was introduced to Tom McKenna, who's the editor. And I missed his name. It was really noisy, and I had like four beers in me too. And I said, oh, so mate, you know, John from Australia, what do you do at the magazine? And Wally says, he's the freaking editor, right? Tom's a very gracious person, so he gave me for that. And I thought to myself, this sort of half-drunk Australian who, I'm not, I wasn't drunk, but you know, tipsy yeah. Australian, mm. wearing a lost shirt, <laughs> didn't know who the editor was, so they didn't forget me, you know? They said, no. oh, yeah, we met that guy. You're the dude so, <laughs> that doesn't know us. Well, he liked it. We all went out to dinner afterwards because I guess that's one of the drivers behind wood dust is that mm. what I've learned from my carbotech were very good to me, you know, mm. they me around the world and mm. I mean a great a great old company and mm. there's a community in that space whether we'd be in the tool companies that is connected to the makers like particularly the more educational guys like Vic Tesla or Mike Fortune and stuff. Mm. And you you know, you meet up at shows once a year you always make sure you've got recent pictures of your kids on your phone because, you know, they're a gen- it's a genuine community. Mm. And Woodus was a little about that. It was about not just, oh, you hear how you make a joint. It's about getting people together mm. from broad range of, you know, woodworking is an international pastime. Mm. It's adored by millions of people is the line that I use. It is. It's in- mm. right back from those Persian guys I used to work with in Sydney or right through to Michael Fortune from Canada, great maker bit of a rock star, carries on like a rock star. Mm. That's good, you know. So it's this big community, and what we wanted to capture at Wooddust was not just, you know, your local sort of men's shed, downtown woodworking thing, with all due respect, but we wanted to show a broader experience because woodworking, you know, and I say, oh, it's a fundamental human activity. It is, you know, like everyone, right from the dawn of time, men have mucked around with wood, or people, sorry. And... That was what we were trying to tap into, the community thing. So, yeah. And we were successful, to answer your question, at Wood Dust because it was one of the yarns nights there, we'd had Lee Nelson on stage, who looked pretty wrecked, poor old guy, next time give yourself more time, Tom, standing in the hall talking to a girl who made wood, does, a good friend of mine, Nula Behan from Brisbane, who's an amateur 
woodworker, hobbyist, enthusiast, mm. talking to Tom Lee Nelson and Vic Tesla, and I thought, success. Yeah, you know? mm. that's what was great about it. We brought, and then mm. I think Byrne Chanley met Ross Annals from Queensland mm. for the first time, and they did that collaborative steam bending thing. Yeah. And now they talk regularly. They yeah. Ross was recently in town for a show, and they went out to dinner together or something. You know, stuff. It, it was building that, and that was big driver behind Wood Dust from this experience I've had overseas. So. Mm. Roundabout way to get to the answer. Was it successful? It was successful at that level. Yeah. yeah. You know, financially, I don't think, oh, we lost a bit of money, but it wasn't disastrous. I always worry about the contributors as far as the, you know, like the tool makers and stuff that come. You always want to make sure that they make a buck, and, you know, you can't guarantee that. Mm-hmm. New show, basically in the middle of nowhere, you know. And, um, but. All in all, I think it came together, yeah. Yeah. We came together enough for you to do one earlier this year too. Well, I wanted to, you know, keep the keep it going and I wanted mm. to experiment with this rotating, which had its positives and it was, financially it was pretty tough to pull that event off. Mm. But then, you know, we tried a different type of format, so... I think it has legs. So I'm currently talking to Victorian Woodworkers Association who want to do a joint event with me in the beginning of 21. And I also planning another event for mid-year next year. So I think, yeah, it's got legs. It's just we just have to get through the startup, you know, because ultimately what I'm wanting to do is I want to do a show called American Masters where we bring out, I mean, because, you know, a whole generation of makers in Australia, probably yourself as well, grew up with the images of Maloof and Nakashima and Wendell Castle and stuff. And I'd like my company, Craft Media Australia, to pull the show off where we bring a solid collection of North American craft out to Australia and show it. Bring a, I mean, I've never seen a Sam Maloof chair until recently. Bring one to Australia. Bring a Nakashima cabinet. Bring a Bring a... a a Wendell Castle piece. Yeah. And I think that Wood Dust has opened the doors to facilitate that show. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, we don't have the capacity like Americans do to go to the Met and yeah. go down into the furniture collection there and just see, like, acres of the world's best furniture from all all times and places, including Nakashima and Wendell Castle. Oh, like at the Met. I mean, you, you've been there. Yeah. I walked up there into the Japanese collection and yeah. there's a fully functioning Nakashima suite. <laughs> and I've never seen one before. Yeah. And it's full split. Well, is it, is it oak? Low canoe chairs. Yeah. And it was magnificent, yeah. you know. And I think, I think I was reading some of your questions before. What, what's, what do I look for? in a piece of furniture, in the design, when I see to feedback to the designer, does it move me? And I saw that piece of furniture and I went, oh, my God, now I understand why Makashima. I mean, you can glean a lot from his book. But when I saw it in the flesh, I went, oh, my God, and I sat down on it. There's kids crawling all over it. There's (laughs) magazines because it's for public use. And I'm just trying to make eye contact with people on either side of me so I can just talk about what I'm doing here. (laughs) You know, that would be slightly weird, obviously, but hey. 
<laughs> they might have been there for the same reason, in which case it would have been totally, totally fine. Well, well, actually, actually, I don't think so, because there was a Japanese woman sitting next to me, an American Japanese woman, she had two kids, and they were just crawling on the tabletop. Yeah. You probably know the piece I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. And just reading a magazine, taking a little bit of time out, basically. She was switched off looking at a magazine, and she does not experience that piece at the level I'm experiencing it at, but I tell you what, it's providing her total comfort. Yeah. And her kids, everyone was enjoying it. The kids were able to get up on top of it, crawl over it yeah. like a little castle, like a fort. Yeah. And she's kicked back in this canoid chair that don't look that comfortable, but actually are. So, yeah, 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 totally. You yeah. don't get to see that. And this is why young designers should travel, go and see stuff like that. And that's, that's another one of my questions. Should Australians go and travel? And 100%. I think definitely. I mean, definitely. you know, traveling's fun. The food, you know, diversity of food. We go to Spain in two weeks. I can't wait to go to Spain. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm just thinking tapas, yeah? Tapas, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and Spanish wine. Yeah, um, that's right, yeah. We're going to go and see the, the, the Gaudi um, Cathedral in Barcelona yeah. and all of that. Yeah. We'll see some great paintings of Picassos and all this. Yeah. And should you travel? Yes. To see other woodwork? Yeah, maybe. Maybe. But go for influence. Meet yeah, people. Yeah, that's right. And you don't even know what you're going to see or who you're going to meet. And it's the same with the brilliance of something like wood dust, which is you go yeah. there thinking you might have one experience. You don't even know what experiences you're going to get or, or who you're going to meet or, you know... Well, that's exactly right, and you get this, because this is the thing, I think, back, way back we were talking about, you know, Australians will sit back and go, oh yeah, we'll see how it goes, and what they see is, all, all they're doing is this mental calculation about, this is the price to go to the event, and this is what I'm going to learn, but you don't get to actually, what Wood Dust is really about is bringing you into that broader community of makers who are all there for the same reason because they just love doing this. And you don't know who you're going to meet. And you know when you meet someone for the first time who ends up to be a critical part of your life, you know? I mean, and you don't know that when you're at the time, but then you get a call where you see them again and relationships build. Absolutely. You know? It's 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 like when I met I met Adam Markovich, who's a young maker here in mm, Melbourne, and yep. I went to Wood Review Live. I think it was a year or two ago, and he made a um, speech about design, yeah. which was pretty cutthroat. You know, it was about well, Australians have got to stop making ugly stuff. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and this is my I'm you know I'm a I'm a I'm a heathen, right? So, and I thought you know what you're right on there because I totally agree. Yeah. Um, let's make a show called Designer Maker that explores that. And that's what, yeah. that's what I did. And that was yeah. the motivation behind that yeah. show was Adam's, Adam's speech. So, yeah. Rock on, Adam. <laughs> yeah, well done. It was, mm. it was a ton of work. Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And you've got a day job as well and a family. Yeah. And well, you that's moved right, to Melbourne. The last three years, I did my MBA. Yeah. I sold my house in Brisbane, moved my family to yeah. Melbourne, got a new job. Megan started a new job. She's a nurse. Yeah, right. Moved my daughter, went to China, and also went to the US and ran Wood Dust Designer Maker. So I've been lying low for a couple of months, but now I'm just getting my mind back together to yeah. get back on the pony, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. Yeah. You probably, you've got to assimilate all this new information that you've gathered too. Well, 
that's the thing, like, going on this holiday is like, uh, I'm staying and working <laughs> because I've got stuff going on. But I also know that it'll be the first time where, you know, and I've got to show Haig and Timbercott a bit of love too because he's been very patient with me whilst the event was on. And that's yeah. what I really like about Haig yeah. is that he, he sees big picture, you know Does what it? I mean? And I'm a big yeah. picture person too. It's like, yeah. you know, people get obsessed about details and things. And, um, and this would be, you want some advice for young makers from my experience? Besides the practical stuff of, you know, keep your costs down, know your customer and all this sort of thing, stick to what you know, build off that, is think about the big picture, you know. That was my whole point about this American Masters show. Yeah. If I can hold it together, I'll do 20 shows in my life, maybe more. If I have a win or a loss at one show, yeah. don't worry about that. Yeah. Worry about the big picture, you know what I mean? Yeah. And then you, it, it, that's how you motivate yourself. How do you get yourself out of a bad place? You start with little stuff, but keep the big picture in mind and work towards that. Yeah. A lot of people can't do that, I think. So, yeah. Well, getting in a bad place is being way, way too focused in the tiny little details. Yeah. Well, it is. It's, and then you fear of failure, procrastination, shutting down. Even fear of success. Totally, yeah. I think that you've got to fear of failure is bad. Fear of success too. I mean, I've, I've never been fearful of that, I think, but um, mm. but I don't feel that I'm successful yet, but I am in some respects, I suppose. My, my wife assures me I am, but... <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, yeah, like, what, what is, what's your definition of success? Oh, 100 million in the bank. Is it? <laughs> no. That's, my, that's um, an old school way of valuing. Um, I don't know. I think that to be... I mean, I think you want to make some money. You can't. I don't want to live in a box when I'm old. And yeah. I'm actually quite fearful of that, of being, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, not, not necessarily getting older, but being unable to do the things that I want to do. Like my father was a very physical person, smart and physical. Yeah. And when he was in his 80s, you know, he couldn't do the things that he wanted to do. Yeah. He couldn't. He used to drive around in his old Land Rover and, you know, he was comfortable financially, he owned a farm, he was respected and he had all these, but he could have made a lot more money than he did, but he spent it on the farm, you know what I mean? That yeah. was his thing. And then when he got to about 85, he, he, he became unwell and I went and saw him and my relationship with him had always been difficult, but, mm. you know, we came to some clarity in his last days that he, I said, how do you feel? Are you going to, you know, are you going to push forward? Are you going to fight this? Because he had, he had cancer. Mm. And he'd known he'd had cancer for some time. He didn't, he just let it run its course. Mm. He didn't um, take any um, medication or anything. Mm. He said, well, my friends are dead. I can't do the things that I want to do. I'm out of here. And that's how he was. And I think that's a great fear of mine is that I'll run out of time on the things that I want to do. I think that's probably my great fear. Yeah. Because things take time to get done. You can't just make, you can't just throw wood dust together in three months. Yeah. I have these fantasies about doing that, but yeah. it actually is a year's work, yeah. really. Yeah. Because it's a subjective project. It's not, you know, building a chair and, you know, which is equally as difficult, I think, to make a really beautiful chair, but you can, but when you're dealing with humans, Excuse me, and I still see myself as a designer and a maker, yeah. but now I'm trying to design and make things that are outside of wood. Wood's yeah. the general theme, 
but it's more about creating, designing and creating experiences, experiences for people. Mm. Or, and what in my work with TimberCon is creating ways to promote their business that are different and differentiated. And that's another piece of advice for from my humble experiences to young makers mm. is to be different, mm. be differentiate yourself yeah. from everybody else. In your career, Adrian, you've done that. You know what I mean? Well, and um, mm. oh, totally. <clears throat> There's no use doing European style ripoffs. You can make a buck, I suppose, but mm, if you want to be, a, you can. And if you want to give people a unique experience and. You need to be able to be different to the herd. Uh, yes. Not easy to do. It's a challenge to rise to. I think, but this is, you've, how do you generate that differentiation? You've got to have your radar up. And if you want to design furniture, good, great pieces. Don't look at other people's furniture work. Don't look at the magazines. <laughs> Go to shows. There's usually free wine and some cool guys hanging out there. <laughs> But go to art galleries. Go to. I love going to the bush. I mean, I used to mm. when we go out of Yetman on the McIntyre River there on Ben's property, and the you know the, just the natural environment mm. mixed with a you know like a built-up environment of farming and equipment and a rusting mm. of gear and rat traps and stuff mm. and. Then you'll design something, I think. Mm. But you've got to take that all in. And then start with a clean piece of paper. Yeah. Don't. I've seen people do that, like sit there. I used to share a workshop with a guy in Sydney who'd have a pile of magazines yeah. and he'd just be appropriating. I was like, yeah. we all do it. Appropriation is a, I'm a big, you know, I appropriate all the time, but you've got to reinvent, not. Yeah. Just take. Do you know yeah. what I reckon you do? Maybe appropriation, if you don't mind me reversing that word and calling it being influenced or inspired. I think inspired yeah. is probably the, the right word. I think that's a great way to look at it because mm. when we when we take an idea, so we're going to, and it's early days for me at TimberCon, so we're building up a marketing idea. Mm. And I, I like to group work it with the designer, um, the, the camera guy, myself and we start with this idea mm. and we take in these influences of other people or appropriation whatever and then we work it together three minds mm. all get to say mm. and then we build a, a differentiated idea that we yeah. can use and different but the rule is different but never weird you can't do weird stuff <laughs> different but never weird <laughs> <laughs> I've tried weird doesn't work <laughs> we at least you gave it a go Oh, yeah, you, you got to push boundaries a bit. Like, we did yeah. this video, like, we've got this really great filmmaker at, um, and that's what I'm becoming more interested in as I get older as films, yeah. is called Shelton. Shelton's a Jehovah's Witness, so he cops a hiding off me, that, which is terrible, you know. But he's so well-humored, he says, if they given you, he says, John, this guy's giving you a hard time about something, you know, whatever. And he'll say, I'll send a couple of guys over to their house on Sunday for the next six years if you want to. <laughs> really good <laughs> Anyway. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're going to witness on your behalf. <laughs> do you, have you read these latest materials? But, um, and he's very, I, I do apologize to him often because, you know, I just carry on and I'm not, you know, to be mean to him, but, you know. Anyway, yeah. we made this video last week. There's a new product come out from the US, and we dressed our designer up in a nurse's costume, and 
one of this this guy I've been making videos with called Phil Shinbine, who's a slightly unusual Canadian. And we made a video featuring two guys for a woodworking product. And, um, yeah, it worked. Some people think they're weird and other people think it's just dumb. Can I have a look at one... this? Where's the... Where can I see this? Uh, go on to Timbercon's YouTube. I'll send you a link. YouTube. Yeah, yeah, do. Timbercon yeah. YouTube station. They've got about 13,000 followers, so it's doing okay. Yeah, yeah. And um, it's the okay. Craig, the K4 upgrade. Anyway. And I've got an idea because I love great films like Stanley Kubrick. There's yeah. something probably I should have put in my influences. <laughs> that scene in 2001, Space Odyssey, where the monkeys are all jumping around yeah. this obelisk yeah. thing, learning machine or whatever they think it is. And I thought we could do a bandsaw video, and it starts with a blank screen with the dawn of woodworking. And I'll get someone to dress up in a monkey suit and bash wood together. <laughs> and then, you know... Evolve to Tim to Sherwood Black, which is the brand, and have them have them um, touching the bandsaw like in that Kubrick film, you know, <laughs> freaking out. And the next scene we go to a couple of monkeys standing in a workshop cutting bandsaw parts, and one walks up and says, "Hey, looking good, Bruce." And the picture is evolved to Sherwood Black, you know. Yeah. And I think yeah. that if I could make that video work well. I think it would take woodworking into a different space. Yeah. Some people won't get it, you know. They want to worry about specifications and oh. how big the friggin' motor and stuff is. But a few years ago, I launched Laguna in Australia when I was mm. working for Gregory's. Yeah. And I convinced Alan Gregory, who is a complex fellow, but knows more about woodworking machinery than anyone I've ever met in my life. His knowledge of that product is incredible. Yeah. And I said... Alan, people don't care about how wide the wheels are on a bandsaw. It's black. It's got a big motor. It looks cool. That's what they care about. We're mm. enthusiasts. You know, it's a mm. retail product. Yeah. Man, he sold thousands of those things. Yeah. Well, not thousands, but hundreds. Went really well. The Lagunas are a good machine too, and I think that they is. are. And that you know, it, it was an easy gig for me because, yeah. and at the end of the day, they are a great machine as well. So, you know, it worked. You've got a statement here. It says, design and making is essential, is the essential human expression. Well, what's, you know, what separates us from us from other species is our ability to um, manage and create our environment. Yeah. I think that humans, the size of our brains, without, I mean, I'm not an anthropologist, but and I did study anthropology for a short time because I thought that would be a good way to enhance my design skills but coming at from that fundamental level yeah, but um, yeah. you know humans solve problems by making things and like going back to even the ridiculous idea of a monkey land drums in a monkey suit using a bandsaw I think the Kubrick film starts with the dawn of man yeah, yeah. that's the opening line on that film yeah. and I think it's one of the greatest films ever made it was recently on the big screen in Brisbane, but I couldn't go because I had to go to an MBA exam. My daughter, who's 15, loved it and said, you just missed out on the most incredible experience. Big screen, the full sound of it. The opening line is the dawn of man, and they see the obelisk, they touch it, and they start using tools, yeah, mm. and start making things. And that's the, where I'm coming from is that it's, it's our fundamental skill, which mm. is being able to make tools and use them. It's how we have been able to move forward as a species in a different way to other species, depending mm. on what you believe. Mm. And ultimately, hopefully, it's the source of our salvation. 
from and the, our own mess that we've created. And then you can go into, you know, that's a pretty fundamental way of thinking, I guess. But then, you know, making things. People want to express themselves. So mm. you express yourself through behavior, behavior making. Yeah. So that's, I guess, where I'm coming from when I say that. Yeah. What about beauty that goes along with that? Well, isn't that interesting? How to define beauty? What was that book? What was it? The, uh, the Unknown Craftsman. I didn't read the whole thing, but I read the important bit. So it's a... Oh, God. I've got it on my... Yeah, it doesn't matter. It's a great book. Making beautiful things. How do you make a beautiful thing? I mm. actually don't know how to answer that question, but I think that if you take, in one context, you take color, proportion. How do, you, how do I judge a piece when I see a piece? It's mm. a combination of color, function, proportion, and then, and then ultimately, I guess, how well it's made. I think that's important. It's not as a higher, it's not critical to me how well something is made. It's more about how it presents and can it reach me? Does it move me? Like I, when I saw the Nakashima thing, I mean, I'm an overexcited. I'm in New York. I'm in the Met first time. Yeah, I'm excited. I see this yeah. thing. But it was just incredible with the presence that it occupied. Being able to capture that, and it, is that beauty? I'm not sure if that's beauty, but it's, it's able to connect with you, you know. Yeah. And beauty comes in many forms, I guess, you know. Oh, it's a beautiful painting, it's a beautiful landscape, but is it, how does it connect with you emotionally? And if it's a beautiful object can do that. <laughs> I mean, that sounds a very, I guess, amateurish way to describe beauty, but... Oh, look, it's such a hard discussion to have anyway. Even if you're an academic, you would probably struggle with a definition of beauty. Well, I think if you can um, always try to make things beautiful, at, yes. you know, making things beautiful at every level, they don't need to be overcomplicated. They don't need no. to be, I don't know, they don't, want, they don't need to waste material. They don't no. need to be showy. You know, they don't need to be ostentatious or anything, just simply, simply beautiful. And I guess that's why a lot of people respond to a lot of Japanese design. Yeah. Because it is so simple and so utilitarian, so yeah. peasant-like. It's paid back. There's essence in there. Yeah, and it's in the subtlety. It's like Roy Shack's work. I've always been a really big fan of Roy's work. And oh, yeah. He does this really lovely sort of mm. Danish slash Japanese pieces. And yep. he's got a new thing. I can't remember what it's called. It's a black cabinet. And it's just a little cabinet on a stand. Yep. I mean, it's a one. dust collector. You know what I mean? It doesn't really have a huge function. But it's just a, just a divinely simple, beautiful thing, you know. And not everything needs to have a function. And, uh, mm. I mean, I've got, in my own house, I have a, I have a friend of mine who's an artist called Carl DeWall. He's a sculptor from Brisbane. Complete mm. nobody, all right? Mm. But, wow, nice guy, Lebanese guy, really talented. And I've, I've got a piece here on the wall of my house, which is a, it's very, it's very, he's taken an old ping pong table and cut it up. It's worn out in parts and put it back together like a collage. Mm. Pretty much like that Australian artist, his Rosalie name escapes me. Gascoigne, who's probably one of my other really favourite artists in Australia. And Carl also makes this very sort of Bauhaus-style concrete lamp, which has got a pyramid, a ball, and a, a sphere and a, and, a, and a block in it. And It's made of concrete and painted brown, and people say, that's just weird. And it's, so, it's, it's so beautiful yeah. because it's so simple. And it's always almost ironic, this concrete lamp. So yeah. it's hard to describe beauty, yeah. yeah. Yeah, if it moves you, maybe that's enough. 
So I know that sounds like the last, this whole conversation so far, it sounds pretty complex. And, um, Do you know, but, John, you know, it's, it's a story and stories are complex. Yeah. And the other thing about stories is they're so interesting. Yeah. I mean, a lot of that sounds so irrelevant and there's a lot more, you know, obviously things that I've done and that. Mm. But for me as a maker, designer or, you know, if it were inclusive of that, like you asked me what, what, if so, I had one word to describe myself yep. at a party and that would be, and I thought about this because I had my job and my, my current job. I've had so many jobs. I've been fired a few times. That's okay. But not as many times as Raph Nathan, I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> How many times has Raph been fired? We ran this, I ran this book launch. This is back when I worked at Carver Tech. Yeah. And I thought Vic Teslin was coming out to do the Veritas Down Under tour. And it took a bit of convincing to get the Canadians on board with that idea because Canadians are, are naturally very much like Australians and I, I, and Indians are like Australians. So I think it's the influence of the Commonwealth and the yeah, British really. Empire, but that's another topic. But, yeah. and I managed to convince Wally that I can put a full functioning moose you know, the, the, it's a boot the tools, you know, like in Canadian accent. And I actually got phone calls from people saying, don't you think that's racist? And not phone call, emails. So I wrote this long email out back in response to them saying, this is called humour, you know, you should check it out. Like, I've got no sense of humour.com or humourforidiots.com.au. And I <laughs> These aren't real websites, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, and one of the person who wrote this email, email to me actually worked within the, the Carbotech complex of the Carbotech world, and um, I sent it to my mate in the next office, not to the person, just to get it out of my system because yeah. it's not racism, dude. It's a moose. It's just, it's you know, humour is all about making fun of the obvious or exaggerating things. So we've got to... I sent the art to Linda, who we had the back page, and we got a, a head of a moose for Canadians are coming. And she said to me, "It's the first time I've had a moose in the um in the magazine, so we'll go with it." Yeah. yeah. So it was successful. So we kicked off this tour with a book launch because you know Rick Tesson had just released his book, The Minimalist Woodworker, which has done really well. He's a really really great guy, and yeah. if you ever get a chance to go and meet him or go to a class, yeah. no matter what level of work you're at, you'll just be entertained, and he's a great person. He'd be a great podcast, and, I think. So we've got this lineup of Australian authors, which wasn't easy to do, and I had a guy who released a book on Australian tools, like his name escapes me. We had that wood turner. Oh, my, my memory doesn't serve me well. The 90s was pretty wild, too. But, and he was like, I don't know, pretty grumpy. And I had Raph Nathan, because he'd written a few... Raph, probably one of the most underrated woodworkers in Australia, he's written two or three books. Mm-hmm. He's, he's got his own style, I get that, but he's very proactive. Great yeah. guy. You talk to Linda about Raph. You, you probably know this, people. And, like, you come, Linda had come home from work in the early days and the dining table would be missing because Raph had si- sold it, <laughs> you know. And she'd say, at least some money was coming in. <laughs> but, you know, he's the real deal. So Raph gets up, yeah. and there's Vic Teslin from Canada. Never met Raph before in his life. No idea who he is. Yeah. Raph does his talk about his experience as a writer, and he starts with all the jobs that he'd been fired with. 
you know, oh, I got fired from this first job that I had. And this went on for about 10 minutes. It was mm. so dry and so, mm. and Vic Tesla sitting there looking up at us saying, what the hell have I got myself into here? It was, it was hysterical. About 50 people turned up. So anyway, that was, that was that day. I don't know how we got onto that, but. Yeah. Well, yeah. you got onto that because you're going to tell me what's the one word you use to describe oh. yourself. And I use it for that work. I don't actually have a job title. I was hired as business development manager. But at the moment, what I'm trying to do is put together the sales team. Timbercon's growing very quickly yeah. for lots of reasons. They need to restructure. So my MBA is actually working at Timbercon's the perfect MBA project, and, you know, because mm. um, you've got to restructure sales, restructure operations, yeah. restructure more. Anyway, so I call myself a facilitator. I actually learned that you can't actually get anything done on your own. Why can't? The only mm. way I actually get things done is by working with other people. Mm. And so I like to call myself that, which might sound a bit weird, but, you know, modern you know, management thoughts, chuck away your hierarchies at the CEO on the top and the sales people down mm. the bottom or whatever. You've got to reverse that model, you know, because the customer in our world is all that matters. So you don't do a job, you facilitate things. Yeah. So I find solutions to problems. I find I connect people like Ross and Vern, connect them yeah. together, and yeah. I help facilitate that. So, yeah, that's yeah. what I would call myself. I wouldn't call myself a designer necessarily, though I do a lot of that. It's yeah. more about putting stuff together and letting it and letting it and nurturing it. Yeah, it's a nice way to think about it, isn't it? It might sound a bit self-obsessive, but... One of the staff actually asked me this week about it, and this is before I read your questions that you sent me previously, and I said, I said, call me a facilitator. I should put that on my um, job title. Yeah. Because um, I, don't, I don't really believe in hierarchies. I mean, I like to think I'm important, obviously, everyone does, but when I'm in a, you know, I'll move from this office to work with this team, and when we get that going, I'll pick up my desk and move into the next office, and I'll work with that team. Mm. I don't care about having my own big office and mm. having a title, because I've learned in my working experience, all that stuff can be taken away from you at any moment. And you, when you leave an organization, often you say, like, I was, say, whatever at Carbotech, when I left that organization, you lose your position, you know what I mean? Mm. And But I was lucky enough to be able to do wood dust and invest in a few things that I did to get into the industry, not just as an employee of an organization, but actually as someone who's trying to play a role in the industry. Yeah. It's a different space. So, yeah. you know, and I think going back to what you said about, you know, you know, the fundamental human trait of being able to make things is that if you learn how to make stuff, it doesn't matter what it is, and in this context of woodworking, you are empowered. And if I lose my job, you know what? Screw it. I'll go and make stuff for a while. I'll go and do this. I'll go and build that. I don't need to have a job description. No. You look at what needs to be done and you do it. Yeah. You know? And I think a lot of people in this world live in a world where, oh, I can't do this, I can't do that. You know, I hear that from my daughter. She's only 15, so she's still young. She's going to come I out. She'll, I, she'll learn, I can do this. She, well, see, everything's, you know, I can't, I can't do that. I don't know how to do that. I don't, mm. When I left my job after three years of making furniture, I didn't know how to make furniture really, but mm. I had a crack at it, you know, yeah, good and bad. A... But And I remember my other daughter, Eliza, I mean, she wanted to get a job, and she applied for jobs left, right, and center. 
and she couldn't do it. And she said, it's impossible. I'll never get a job. Mm. And we went to the U.S. for holiday, and that's when I went and saw the furniture, and she got a different perspective on the world after that yeah. trip. And she came home, and she went, and she didn't even tell us she went and got a job within yeah. like 48 hours. Yeah. And I said this thing to her. I said, Eliza, so what's the difference between this Eliza with a job yeah. and that Eliza who couldn't get a job? And it's the mental state that um, you occupy that anything is possible. Mm. Learn how, and, 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 and build on top of that by having an open mind to be taking opportunities and yeah. having some hard skills like making things or design and you you're no longer going to be a person who will suffer from unemployment. Create your own employment, uh, and that's what I think I do. So uh, yeah. that's a bit of a tangent, hey? Uh. Mate, it's such a it's such an important insight, though. Oh, you can't sit around thinking that you can have a job. I mean, I've, I've worked with people now who had the same job for twenty years. Not a Timbercon, but in previous roles. Yeah. Uh, a, I don't know how I could hold down a job for twenty years. Yeah. Um, three years has been my maximum, and yeah. because you do what has to be done, and you grow, and then you move yeah. to the next thing. And like with wood dust, I don't really want to create a formula that I can repeat for the next twenty years. I actually want to, and this might be unwise, I guess, but test the audience and push them. Wood Dust presents a reasonably conservative initial event. Designer maker, I think, was interesting. What do we do next? I don't know. I'm just thinking about ways to engage the audience and uh, what's the word? Push them, you know, experiment with them. Also, which pushing is risky. yourself. It is risky. Somebody's got to it pay. Is, but yeah, but it's, so, it's an interesting approach. And so, to answer your question, what do I want? What turns me on? Making money? Well, if I wanted to make money, I'd be an accountant, you know. And to all young woodworkers who actually go and work for the PwC with your sister, go and do something else if you want to make money. Yeah, but it. if you want to test yourself and engage with people and try to break rules and stuff, then woodworking is a perfect place to do it because mm. you can be experimental. And that would be my criticism of Australian furniture design. And I, and who am I to criticise? I mean, I'm just one person. But he's so conservative, so same, same, so safe. It's thinking so about safe, selling yeah. rather than just making, mm. you know. And um, I went, I've been to lots of shows, major shows, and gone, wow, there wasn't a single piece in there that actually moved me. Yeah. But, mm. and, but that sounds very arrogant. But, hey, yeah. if you're not moved, you're not moved. It's not arrogant, it's just the Sorry. That's yeah. not to say there isn't some interesting stuff around. But I saw more beautiful things in those simple handmade stools out of recycled yeah. sports clothing and twine that I've seen in, in some galleries. Yeah. And, and I'm serious. It was, I could send you some photos. They're just yeah. out there. Yeah, no, do. Send them through. I'll put them on the website. <laughs> yeah. My boss thinks I'm nuts. I took hundreds of photos of them. <laughs> <laughs> Like you want to talk about China, some of these factories, man, like you go in there, they are, there's, there's generally two levels, compounds with three level houses that have got the most elaborate tea drinking areas you can imagine. Mm. And I drank a lot of tea in China, I tell you. Yeah. I ate snails and I like Chinese food and we were in the north, sort of, sort of para, um, parallel to the North Korea, right up, um, at Qingdao and, couple of other cities and it's all very mm. seafood based diet there's <laughs> always something slightly weird about everything you eat though. like <laughs> well what's that 
Oh, yeah. that sticky thing. That bit. Mm, but the food is incredible. Mm. The Chinese either, and you drink a lot of tea. It's very ceremonial. A lot of that respect and building relationships. Yeah. And go into factories, and some factories are just like, how the hell do I get anything done in here? You know, like it's just crap everywhere and yeah. unorganised. And even though Taiwan is the traditionally the player in that sort of medium priced machinery space, tool space. They're, they're exactly the same, you know, like yeah. crazy people everywhere, it's unorganised, but yeah. they get stuff done. So, yeah. I wonder, you know, nowadays with China getting a lot of influence about how to run factories from factories here in the West, you know, all that will mm. change. Well, I think so. I mean, you see all types, though, like from, we went to one place where they make castings and we, we're working on a new type of, um, well, not really new, like redeveloped pipe clamp with the yeah. steel casting yeah. that was like wow that was just weird like it was like a post-apocalyptic landscape yeah. inside this warehouse yeah. a couple of people on drill presses working on the floor two i went to the factory where they make the bora i think it's bora the brand where they make the um saw horses they pop out things made of steel mate that's the terminator factory when they start making terminators for real that's the place they'll make them because they go in and they hung up on a thing and they go through the conveyor belt to the pressing area to the painting area and they pop out and there's a swarm of young chinese women who package everything by hand and i thought wow this is super awesome still not like a german factory where everything's completely automated and robot based but a lot of humans still in there. You know, they're pumping out hundreds per hour of yeah. these folding out. So I don't know what they what it costs to make it, but when you're paying two hundred dollars for them retail, whew, someone's making a buck yeah. out of that. Yeah, there's a lot of probably import duties and shit going down. Yeah. Oh yeah, and who is that one Chinese? Because the Chinese people think you know like they're evil overlords and stuff, but they've actually got a great sense of humour and. <laughs> I, I really like Chinese people. There. Hey, guess yeah, what? Right. You know what? They're human beings. Yeah, they're actually no different from us. And if you look at yeah. China from a, like from a, from an analytical point of view, you've got say 13 provinces with pretty much a hardcore um, totalitarian government mm. holding that together. Because this is what people don't understand about China: it's not one country; mm. it's actually 13 very different independent provinces. Mm. And without that central government, it could fall apart. And mm. I guess that's why they are so strict: is to hold it together. Because together is where success for the broader community is the Chinese don't care about minorities except that they care about what's good for the majority when they want to build a super fast train from Beijing to Shanghai they just build it get out of the way in Australia we couldn't decide the seat covers so it'd be held up for 10 more years and this is I think what we truly should be frightened of as a western nation in the shadow of China is that they know how to get stuff done, and we don't. Mm. We do not, cannot agree. We cater to minority groups, and I'm not saying this is good or bad, but they just get it done. And I think an interesting situation was that I was in, living in Brisbane up until recently, and they've had major problems with their public transport mm. in Brisbane, particularly the trains, and I won't go into the reasons why that is, but... The government came out and said, we've had great success. In the last 12 months, we've hired 12 new train drivers for the Brisbane network. And in Shanghai, they built 140 kilometres of underground track in the same period. Yeah. That's the difference. You yeah. know what I mean? So you want to take a train from Sydney to Melbourne? 
I reckon we should get a Chinese company to do it because yeah. we cannot do stuff like that. We think about it too much. <laughs> think about it too much. Well, that's been on the cards for the last 30 years that I know about and yeah. still not here. Hmm. Oh, I mean, you can – I recommend everyone to go to China for a holiday. Go to Xi'an. I went to Xi'an on my MBA tour. We did a two-week stint in China. Went to Shanghai, Beijing, and Xi'an in the west where the terracotta warriors are. Yep. And we caught the train from um, Beijing to Xi'an, which was amazing. 300 kilometers an hour, perfect comfort, economical too. Don't eat the snacks, they're slightly weird. (laughs) (laughs) Some of them aren't. It's just like, you know, like I've got a... I've got a sugar-coated like sardine or something. It's just weird. Yeah. And what you get to, you see the terracotta warriors. Wow, the terracotta warriors and the Great Wall were built both built by the first emperor. All right. Yeah. Um, wow. And then there's the first emperor's mound over there, which is sort of about four kilometres from where the terracotta warriors are. A hand-built mound. I think it's 145 metres high or something. Solid earth. Never been opened. And I, that does my head in. If it was in the West, that'd be open to be charging $10 to get in, you know, have a look. But the Chinese don't touch stuff like that. It's uh, it's an interesting place. Plus, they probably don't have the technology to open it. Because, um, I reckon there's it's probably too fragile. Too fragile. Leave it alone. Mm. You've got a huge amount of respect. For the Chinese? Mm. I mean, I'm going to go into my own experiences. I just think what's unfortunate about the Chinese people in... I don't like racism, right? I don't tolerate it. We all are fundamentally racist at one. We all have our prejudices. But having had such a diverse background in my upbringing, even though I came from a pretty straight, white, middle-class family from Ballina, my, my father's friends were Indian guys, the Singh family. I knew Bushies and the guys working on concrete, worked with Persians, worked with people from Iraq, worked with Italians now, like Timicon's got lots of Italians working for her. And, and, and I've never really worked with Chinese people, but people always have these preconceptions about what these people are about. And the Australian media play upon that. Mm. Oh, they're going to come and get us. And no doubt, they're not innocent. They've got terrible human rights records, Tiananmen Square and things like that. But at mm. the end of the day... 50 million people died due to starvation. They have to pull that country back together or that happens again. You know what I mean? And you can't lose sight of that, that there's probably 30 hours of food in Shanghai, right? 30 hours of food. If that supply chain is broken because of someone who has a problem with something, then you've you've got 26 million people without food within three days. Think about that. So... It takes a pretty ruthless government to hold that together. And I'm not saying it's okay. I'm just saying this is just the bloody realities, you know? You're talking from a position of understanding, which is something that is very difficult to achieve unless you actually go and visit. I think, and that's the thing. And so what happens to the, to the Chinese people is that they're misrepresented in our media. It's like this, it's like the, the milk thing, like the baby formula. Yeah. Now, Chinese people like their children, you know what I mean? Yeah. They love them, just like we just do. Just like everyone else, yeah. Yeah, I was at a restaurant in Shanghai a couple of years ago, uh, sorry, in the NBA tour, and the father and mother walk in, and they had a Down syndrome child 
on a little trolley pushing it through the restaurant like a normal kid. You know what I mean? It's just, yeah. you know, their reputation, oh, disabled, will they get rid of them? No, they don't. Mm. Maybe in some remote communities, but hey, that happens everywhere. And so they love their children. They like to buy Australian milk powder. Why? Because it's 100% safe and because they can't trust the milk powder produced in China. And it's filled with things like asbestos and stuff. <laughs> some companies are, you know, how many hundreds of babies have died of it? <laughs> and so, but the totalitarian state government says, well, you're only allowed to buy products made in China because there's a current political push, China for China. So mm. now that it's the world market, the Chinese companies are going to stop worrying about supplying over time, outside of the environment and supplying within the economy, so they ban imported milk. So if you want to feed your baby safe milk powder and you can't buy the local stuff and you're not allowed to import it, what do you do? You get someone to buy it for you and send it in the mail. So there's all these people get on social media saying, oh, these Chinese people buying all the milk powder, they're terrible, they're criminals. It's ridiculous because all they're trying to do is get a Chinese baby a, a safe meal. <laughs> they're making a buck out of it. These people in Australia, they're opportunists. But if, wouldn't you do the same? Mm. You know? Yeah. Like Haven't a you done immigrant. the same in some way other, you know, other avenue? It's the government making this call, not the people. Mm. And mm. when I might sound, oh, you know, a supporter of the Chinese, I'm not talking about the Chinese government. I'm talking about the Chinese yeah. person. They're very respectful and very... Yeah. Very funny. My father, he's very frightened Chinese people and the authoritarian regime taking over our great country. Mm. Since he voiced that fear, I've been so curious about how it's come to pass. My father, for instance, has become so frightened. I'm not, and I don't want to be frightened about anybody. And I don't think there is a reason to be frightened, but... I'm so curious about why, how, how has this happened? I think that there's the subconscious manipulation of what we think through media. I mean, I'm not, I'm not into conspiracy theories or anything, but you know, there's always something kicking around the media. Like, remember a few years ago how, oh, they, you know, there was, and this sounds grotesque, and it's completely false, like using um, aborted fetuses in food meals, and, and there was images going around the website of, an embryo in a, in a bowl of soup. I mean, this is the sort of people the Chinese are. And then, uh, you know, the, the memories of Tiananmen Square, which was horrific. I'd ask my father about what's horrific. The Chinese don't own horrific. All no. humans are capable of horrific on both sides. He never blamed the Japanese for what happened in Japan or in the, in the war because we did exactly the same to them. The bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki mm. was were just war crimes in my opinion. Firebombing of Tokyo way before then. Yeah. And it, Dresden it, in Germany. Yeah, war crimes. Wow. But we're on the winning team, so it's okay. The Chinese are no worse than anyone else in that context. And I think also because it's been such a closed country, yeah. like people, friends of mine who are like normal people say, oh, China must be dangerous. No, it's not dangerous. It's no more dangerous than New York. I mean, actually, New York's probably pretty safe, but it's, it's probably safe. no more dangerous than Western Sydney. It's, you know, there's rules. 
learn a little about the culture before you go there, what's respectful and what's not respectful. Mm. And the Chinese don't even care you're there. You know, like you think no. that a bunch of Westerners walking through Shanghai would be interesting to them. No. They look straight through you. No. They don't care. You are just in the way. So I wouldn't say there's anything to be... The greater fear is not to be to miss the opportunity of growing with China, I think. Mm. I mean, I don't want to... This is a delicate topic in Australia, but it is the market. America is finished. Yeah. If I was a young woodworker, I'd be finding ways to get into that market mm. because there's 300 million people, 300 million people in the middle class in China. And you've got to think about that. That's bigger than you know, almost the same population in the entire US. Yeah. that make more money than you and I do, or about the same, you know, middle-class people. And, like, woodworking is becoming a hobby in in China. Mm-hmm. Um, if you talk to people in the tool industry, um, you know, people are... There's a gentleman who's a colleague of mine, Mark Strayler, who is a agent. He's a nice guy. I've met him through the, the show scene. Yeah. He represents Lee Nelson, uh, Veritas, file chisels yeah. in China and he's their agent, their buyer, because people are buying woodworking gear. Yeah. They don't know how to use it. All this, they, I went to a retail shop in China where you can buy woodworking gear and you think, wow, this is an emerging opportunity. Yeah. I went to a place in Shanghai where you can do classes yeah. with kits. Like it's, all, it's aimed at younger people, but you can yeah. do a kit and do a woodworking class. And you know, there seems to be a advice. real business opportunity to send services. I think educational it yep. would be huge, and retail. I'm actually thinking teaching, teaching, and mm. providing half-made products, services, uh, how to do things. Yeah, we should talk because mm. I, having been there, and I can show you some stuff that it's early days, it's risky, yeah. you need yeah. a partner, you've got to have someone who's Chinese-based. Yep. And there's, you've always got to be prepared to give something away. They will, in Confucianism, Chinese, to imitate is respectful. So we, in, we interpret intimate, um, to copy something as being bad, the Chinese, it's, well, oh it's just perfectly fine for us to do that. You know? Yeah, it's but interesting you Talking just previously about the designer makers trying to imitate as well, mm. you're talking negatively towards that. I'm not. I'm not trying to. Trap oh, I'm a Westerner. Of course, I'm going to think that's, yeah. the, that's my values, you know. But if you're a Chinese person, copying is just you know, that's just yeah. what you do. Yeah. Like the Chinese aren't like if you want innovation, you go to America or you go to Europe. If you want mm. um, copy, you go to the East. Yeah. That's a, that's what I've learned from looking at tools <laughs> when you go to a tool show. You won't, if you go to Canton Fair, you rarely see anything new. But if you go to, to you know, the Cologne trade show, you'll see yeah. new stuff, yeah. innovative stuff. Yeah. There's a, and that's, I think that's based on the values of those societies. So yeah, it's normal for me to say, oh, I wouldn't want to say an outright copy. You know, you see Matt Blatt and those crappy furniture stores doing it all the time. It's horrendous. But to a Chinese person, that's perfectly fine. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that. So you've got to keep this in mind when you go yeah. into that Chinese space. Yeah. Is that different rules, and that's what we studied in the MBA was understanding the cultural um, aspects of the people. Like we went to Tiananmen Square, we went to the Forbidden City. You know, the Forbidden City was actually not a pleasant place. I didn't. I actually didn't like it. It's beautiful artifacts and all that, mm. but. Walls within walls within walls. 
And that's how the mm. Chinese see the world. They've got a war around the whole bloody country, you know what I mean? Mm. They're inward-looking and protective of what they have. Mm. Will they come and invade Australia? I don't think so. They want access to our economy, but they will they invade us? It's not their style. China is mapped off, and that's where it ends. Yeah. And with, with Hong Kong, that's, in their eyes, just part of China. It's in Taiwan as well, but they can't touch it at the moment. Well, it's funny when you go there, like Taiwan, you know, Taiwanese people are Taiwanese people, but yeah. if you look at a map, I was looking at a globe in one of the factory's offices just casually while I was waiting for something, mm. and, you know, the, on the map, China was painted red, and that included Taiwan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Depends on your perspective. Yeah. 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 But so I, I don't think the average Australian person has anything to fear from Chinese people. Well, the government's a different cat, but if you were to ignore China and think that our economy will survive into the future, you are kidding yourself. I can't mm-hmm. see that happening. I I do see an embrace of the market in China. Yeah. Australia's so, biggest trading partner is China. That's not going yeah. to change. But the, I think that there, there will come a time, and not all people, the, the um, racist attitude that people have towards China has to modify because they mm. you know, they don't care. Like, but yeah. they don't want our access to our economy and resources, obviously, but we need to actually find a new level of understanding. And I think that in mm. Australia, like in a situation your father, with all due respect, he probably just he needs to go there and see what it's like. Yeah, I'm going to talk to him at greater depth. He's got some other issues that he's dealing with at the moment that mm. China doesn't even touch. What I'm curious about and what, I'm, what we're talking about is just this notion of a, a China as an enemy. How did that come to be? It never was up until earlier this year, I think, with the trade war with the States. Mm. And like, oh, what the hell, man? Oh, That's a really on. good question. How did, this, how did we come to this place? It's a manufactured thing. I would agree. In the media. It just doesn't need to be like that. No. And, you know, yeah, some Chinese factories produce a lot of crap and other Chinese factories produce really fantastic products like yep. iPhones. Totally. Spacecraft. Yeah, that's <laughs> so, right. The microphone that I'm talking into now, the recorder that's recording our conversation, it's just the way. Do you want to wrap up? Yeah, I reckon. I reckon we've we've talked about some really interesting things. Is it relevant to woodworking? Do you think? It look, we're talking about your story, and we're talking about designing and making, and we're talking about things that could be quite revolutionary for people, and that's what we're talking about. Who gives a fuck about woodworking, man? Woodworking's great fun. I love it. It's a passion. I really, really love it. Right? This. These conversations don't have to be about woodworking. Next week, I'm going to talk to a tattooist. Oh, okay, interesting. And oh, because it's more of a designer maker thing, isn't it? It's not designer really, yeah. maker. And I'm going to talk to Linda Nathan next week oh, okay, as cool. well. Yeah. And I've got architects coming on board, and I want to talk to people of all stripes jewelers, Hi. ceramists, yeah, okay. movie makers. Yeah. Writers. Writers are interesting people. I'd like yep. to be a writer. I'm too lazy. Oh, man, <laughs> I don't think so. 
<laughs> I think you've got heaps of energy. You oh, no. Like I, play, I talk a big game. I have my ups and downs. When I'm on, I'm on. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I'll just work six, seven days a week until it's done. But then, it, like, at the moment, I'm sort of, until today, I wasn't actually quite ready to talk to you no. because I'm actually just putting myself back together a bit yeah. post wood dust. It was, I had, I need, I need a break. And, yeah. Which people don't like that about what I do because I generally do a show just a few little bit and come back and they go, what do you mean? Well, I'm actually just been contemplating what happened and now we'll do it again. And that's just how I function. I need to manage that better. John, I reckon you're managing it really, really well because you're hmm. accepting the fact that you need to take stock. You do. And I learned, like in my MBA, I learned a lot about, not that you know I'm pitching that too hard, but... I learned a lot of things about human nature and this, that experience. Like, you know, I, like for me, I'm able to work in complex environments. Actually, I need to work in complex environments. And, I, and understanding that, I mean, you probably understand the difference between a simple environment and working in a complicated environment or a complex environment. You've got to take the, you got to look at situations like in that way. Yeah. Complicated environments, you can't have solutions. You have experimental ideas, yeah. you test things and review, yeah. test and review. Oh, Simple environments is cause and effect. I'm yeah. a complex thinker. Yeah. And like, so I look at someone like Evan Dunstan. Evan did, did Wood Dust to start with me. Yeah. He may say differently, but he pulled out of doing the shows. Why? Because he works in the simple space. Not to mean that he's stupid or anything like that. No. It's just that, do you know why Evan's a great furniture maker? Because he removes the risk from the process. Cause and effect, cause and effect, pre-planned cause and effect. So there's never any errors. So his work comes out being immaculate. Me, I don't think like that. I think complex. Many balls in the air. Some things work. Some things don't work. And I think he struggled with that. And if you're going to run an event like Wood Dust, you need to be able to work in complex situations. And so that's what I've learned about human nature is that if you want to be a really great furniture maker, in the traditional sense where you, you know, have a range and you go to work each day with a workshop and stuff, you need to, you, it has to suit that cause and effect personality, you know. Me, it drives me bonkers because I, Megan would say to me when I was making furniture, people like that, make more of them. Really? Yeah. We'll have to make another one? I just yeah. want to make one. Yeah. I want to make another one, you know, and, yeah. uh, Woodrust is a bit the same. But my idea was Woodrust in the China context, not wanting to stretch you out too much, but no, no, let's talk to about, yeah, let's touch base on this. Do an event in China, a wood dust event in China mm. that takes Australian and North American makers to China and does a retail slash educational show. Mm. And I I having just been there again, I realised how difficult that would be mm. and um, I don't even know where to start but I, I mentioned it to Wayne Nelson he said if you do it I'll come with you yeah. you know and I think wow there's an endorsement so yeah. that's yeah. one of my goals yeah take wood dust because it's a universal craft man it totally is it's an and ancient ancient craft and there's heaps of tradition in China and the biggest emerging market the world has ever seen yeah. so you've got to think about that if you're a young designer maker yeah. The biggest emerging market in history. Yeah. But don't let fear and racism get in the way of that. You've got to. Wait. But I think you need to go there and see it, yeah. and make friends with people because you need a partner. Simple as that. You can't do it on your own. No. Yeah. But you will be had. You will be taken advantage of. <laughs> big time. <laughs> 
And I know, like, I mean, I've seen a few of my colleagues in woodworkers who are getting involved with Chinese companies and they're, yeah. you don't go there until you've got it sorted with them. Because yeah. they'll just rip you off. Yeah. Not saying they're criminals. I'm not, I'm not talking about money necessarily either, but ideas and that'll end oh, up in a factory God. and being reproduced in 20 minutes. Yeah, look, that's yeah. right. And, and wouldn't we do the same? And didn't we, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, it's like, it may not have been from China, but totally, not, like, ideas. But not us proper out. artists like you and I, of course. We would never appropriate. <laughs> no, I just call it an influence. <laughs> or an inspiration. <laughs> yeah. So at the end of the day, you mark, the market will decide and your colleagues will decide what's good and what's bad. So, mm. yeah, yeah, keep an eye on, on that. Anyway. Yeah, John, look. Cheers, man. Thanks so much for the conversation. It's been awesome. I hope you don't think I'm bonkers, because I'm not. I'm just a really normal person. I hope that was useful for you. Mate, was it useful for you? I think that, like, one of your questions to me was, when you're in a bad place, how do you put yourself back together, right? Yeah. And like, I wouldn't say that I was in a bad place post-podcast, but I'd never pushed myself that hard yeah. ever in my life until the, after that event in, in August. Yeah. And I was completely... Like, had nothing left. I mean, there was one point there during the event, I was clearly exhausted, and Megan said, you need to get off the floor. People can see how exhausted you are. You need to go up and get away from here. So I went upstairs, lay down on the floor, and I found a used sock on the floor and put it across my forehead so I could block the light out, and I slept for three hours. Yeah. Went back and went back. I was absolutely burned out. And after the event proper, you know, I lost a bit of money on that last show. I think it's a good formula, and I'm prepared to invest in the, into this. Yeah. Keep the big picture in mind. Yeah. And I think the little steps of restarting again and then talking you, to you today is little steps of starting to get my mind going again. Yeah. Because I'm planning a, a YouTube event, because we haven't done a YouTube event in Australia really for woodworking. I met a woman called April Wilkinson, who's got a million YouTube followers at the last party I was in with Fine Woodworking mm. in July. She's expressed interest in coming to Australia. Mm. I also know the Wood Whisperer, so he might come out. I need to get on that pony. And so this, taking the time, you, you're, hel- you're helping me by letting me articulate in my what's in my mind, mm. and I can start to work again yeah so yeah I got, I'm getting a lot out of this yeah. and everyone loves to talk about themselves too especially <laughs> me apart from and that and I don't it's normally do it either you know like you don't normally think, get a chance man no I'm one of those people who walks down the street like when they're interviewing people on the streets for local TV for Christ's sake pick me no <laughs> I never do <laughs> let me pontificate and like, I know, and I'm not, I'm actually, I don't actually spend a lot of time talking about myself, but this is a good opportunity to do so. It's great. Thank yeah, you. Mate, but if you wanted so to good. talk more about specific stuff, you know, just ask. What we'll do is when you've got something a little bit more firm in your mind about what's going forward in your next event or your next show mm. or whatever it is, mm. come back and uh, we'll have another really good chat about it mm. because this stuff you're doing is such an interesting thing mm. and look if i can help i'll help well ben if you, i want to do this american master show i reckon you should help with that i mean i'm pretty determined to pull that off and i talk about it more than do anything but i find that if you one of my techniques right here's a little one of his advice for a young maker talk about stuff yeah i, I bounce ideas off people and they yeah. Some people misinterpret that as you mouthing off and you're oh, going to take no. over the freaking world and whatever. No, it's not that. I'm bouncing, a, yep. I'm just bouncing an idea off you. Yep. See how you respond. Yep. 
And if you talk about stuff enough, then people, then you get an email. Hey, I was thinking about that idea you had. Yeah, yeah really? Let's talk about it. Let's have a coffee. Yeah. You know? And you know what else? You're developing your ideas by vocalizing them, manifesting totally. them. Like you manifest them in the world and give them a bit of a chance, and as you're doing that, you um, are developing that idea further, and it's 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 a great way to do it. I think so, and and, and you've got to understand that. I think. I mean, I grew up in a household where, you know, like I'm no different today than I was when I was a kid, and but my parents would say, "Oh, you're all talking no action." They just put you down, bang. And it took me a long time to get over that, you know. <laughs> oh, even now. You know? oh, God. Well, that's, my, parents, my parents were totally brutal, and mm. not in a physical way. But we, we used to, Dad used to get a horse whip out when we sort of backmouthing or something. But you know, your son's an intelligent, sensitive, creative kid. Give him a bit of space, mate. I treat yeah. my children very differently, you know. And yeah. But that's normal, I think, in, this, in Australia. Yeah. People, my father's generation, older generation, were hard, man. You know, coming from the land and that. You know, one, my grandfather was a professional, not an amateur boxer and stuff. And these were hard people. I'm yeah. such a fat softy compared to, you know, the gener- couple of generations ago. But I think there's a lot world, of John. Oh, totally. And a lot of people, when you start talking up an idea, they they get out of their comfort zone so quickly because, hey, we're just having a conversation here. I'm developing an idea and you're helping me to do it. You can add to this idea and then we build an idea together. That's how I think. That's with my group work, with this marketing team. Get the right people, group work it, share ideas. Rich pictures, I love using a whiteboard. You build an idea by drawing pictures. Like I drew, I did a presentation for the, for Haig Haswell, the owner of Timurgon, by describing the mess that his operations were in by putting a crucible with a fire with people swimming around in it. That's your operations team. They're burning to death under pressure because no one knows what the fuck's going on. And you take that idea and then you do a rich picture. And sorry, a, a mind map. So you draw little tentacles off it. All yeah. identify all the individual problems that are related to that. Then you can build solutions, and yeah. that is facilitating a solution. And so, um, but when you talk, people get really uncomfortable about that, you know. Do they? Yeah, I think that you know when I, yeah. you get it. Like if I start saying, "Oh, American masters," right now, John Madden and Tony Wanker, because he reckons he's going to pull off an international furniture show <laughs> by bringing out probably about I don't know. Eight million dollars worth of furniture, right? Twenty well, million wait, dollars, man. That. Huh? Double that figure. Yeah. Anyway, the man. Yeah. Andy Buck, my colleague from Rochester, who works for the RMIT University, he's on board. Mm. Um, I re- I believe Adrian Potter would be interested in being on board a project like that. Mm. Ross Haswell's got experience in all that. He's on board. Mm. Now we haven't actually done anything yet, but no. there's a team coming together. Yeah. Why? Because you talk about it. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And yeah, because yeah. it's worthwhile doing too. It's a great idea. Oh, yeah. And you might actually make a buck as well. It'd be great. You <laughs> 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 make my wife happy. Yeah, you know. I know. I'm Good on you, Megan. I'm just a couple. <laughs> Uh, I just, you know, I just really like it's something you, I think you asking your questions, what's something I really want to achieve or something along those lines. Mm. Oh, what do I want to do? 
What are the new I'd challenges? Love to build a really, I want to build a really nice house in the country one day. Not yeah. some elaborate mansion, like something more like a Glen Merkick, you know, tin shed thing, and have a dog and have a fireplace and yeah. have a studio. And when you're older, so you can spend a time to reflect on things because people don't reflect on stuff enough. You need to, you need to like after wood dust, yeah. winding down, taking some time out to reflect on the idea of what happened and then re-emerging. People yeah. don't stop. So you get banality, you know what I mean? Yeah, or you just burn out, can't do it. Anymore. You burn out. So, yeah. Anyway. Don't burn out, mate. Uh, hang in there. Oh, no, I'm okay. Yeah. No. Oh, I just know when to stop and go away, have a holiday. I have a very loving home life and yeah. it's a sanctuary, so like, we're yeah. good. Yeah, nurture that too. John, it's been great talking to you, man. Thanks so much Thanks, for your Adrian. time. It's been awesome. You have been listening to the Designer Maker Revolution. Thanks heaps, John. Really appreciate your time, mate. And thank you for listening. Big thanks to you for sharing this show on your social sites. Get in touch with me, make at designermakerrevolution.com. Don't forget to subscribe. See you next time. Bye.